Welcome to episode 75 of The Endless Stream. I am Aiden, and as usual, I am joined by Kevin and Brian. We are three artists, illustrators, filmmakers, and all-round shit-talkers, and each week we take some of the endless stream of content brought to you through Netflix, Hulu, Disney, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon. Wherever you get your content, we take a chunk of it, we watch it, and we talk about it. This week we are delighted to be joined by PJ Holden, comic book artist for Judge Dredd, 2000 AD, uh, String Bags, The Lion and the Eagle... He's done a lot of great work over the last 20 years. He is on Twitter at PJ Holden. He is co-host of the Sunnyside podcast. And he joined us this week to talk about John Borman's Excalibur. We also talk about She-Hulk a bit. We talk about just nerd news in general. We talk about his career and his journey through art and tech, which is fascinating. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to the podcast, heading over to iTunes, rate and reviewing. All those good things. Tell a friend about The Endless Stream, please. It really helps us grow, really helps us uh, keep doing this. Also, you can head over to Instagram, at The Endless Cast, where we put up art to go with every episode and uh, clips of the show as well. That's a great spot to suggest something for us to watch or, you know, disagree, have a different opinion. Tell us what you think about the movies or television we're watching. Suggest something for us to watch is basically what I'm saying there. And you can also go old school and send us an email, theendlesscast at gmail.com. Same thing. Disagree with us. Tell us something to watch. Get in touch. All of that being said, let's get into this episode. I have a beard on my face. So I'm really <laughs> had this entire podcast down. You know. Very Kevin could lend me some of his eyebrow. It would be I know that. Just, just enough. This wordiness, yeah. If somebody asked me recently uh, where your ride was real, I won't say who, but they 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 really did think that you were maybe getting them tinted or something. My eyebrows. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't blame them. I have they the uh, answer my good stuff. I do have the uh, unfortunate. What would you say? Thirty-four years of history to prove I don't have. I haven't had my eyebrows tinted. There's yeah. a record of. Hairy babies. Did I meet just... you all to watch Excalibur? Is that the way it worked? You all went off and watched Excalibur? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'd, seen it, I'd seen it before, but um, I hadn't watched it in, in a while. I think we might have just... Like 10 years old, it was on BBC Two or something late at night, or RTE Two or something. It was on the, I think it was called The Last Picture Show with Brian Redden, and I recorded it on VHS, and then I watched it the next day, and I was like, I'm too young to be watching this. <laughs> <laughs> I still watched it anyway. I, yeah. I definitely know I watched it. Well, we, we should save it for the podcast. Yeah, we yeah, say, yeah, yeah. We should, we this, should is save podcast, it. this is podcast gold. So I guess I should, I guess, formally welcome PJ to the Endless Stream. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I I think I first became aware of your like work through Twitter and um, comic conventions in <laughs> oh, Ireland. I'm huge on Twitter. <laughs> I, I know that's going to sound odd. You're one of seven people I follow. I'd say so. You're you're big to me, pal. <laughs> I know that's going to sound odd, but you're one of the few people I keep Twitter for because. <laughs> That makes it all worth it. I mean, I, it, I don't get paid for Twitter, but I really put some effort in. <laughs> I, I think a hundred percent because I'm I'm very interested in creative processes and like some of my favorite stuff on Twitter has been, you know, seeing Brad Bird and Pete Sohn talk about filmmaking on there, just like witnessing mm-hmm. a private conversation or ha- 
people talking about how they work and seeing people's art processes. Um, and I just love the way you talk about your process focus and how you work with mm. Clip Studio and, you know, your your page, how you process or work through pages. Yeah. And on top of that, then every so often you say something like I'm enjoying Jack Reacher or Sherlock Hulk, which <laughs> I'd forgotten that um, myself and Brian had a chuckle about that for a while. <laughs> I, I, I was kicking myself that I didn't think of that. I mean, yeah. uh, oh, Reacher was good fun. Um, <laughs> the, the only problem with shows like that is you sort of you imbibe them all in one go and then all the good jokes are gone within 20 minutes and then you've got nothing left. You know, it was still if I watched it week after week, I'd have had new thoughts and new jokes, and but mm. you know, that's the way it goes. No, I mean, I've been blogging, I started online, so I'm I'm 52, I'm a very old man. Um, but I've worked in IT previously, um, which is why there's there's quite a heavy skew towards processes and things because I worked in IT mm -hmm. primarily in IT support, so it's sort of part of my natural makeup to kind of go. Let me exp let me mansplain this to everyone. Let me if I broadly explain it to everyone, I can't be accused of mansplaining because everyone's every you can all ignore me. Um, so I I do like to kind of get really into things and then and then um, part of it's what part of it is me trying to figure it out for myself and kind of going, what oh, does this make sense? Does that make sense? And then part of it is me kind of going, ah, Eureka! I know how to make this work, and then kind of explain it to everyone else. That's just sort of the way I've, I mean, it's taken me, I've, I've stopped working on IT, um, like my day job, um, the last time I was doing my day job was, I think, uh, 2008. So I've only, I've, I've been working on IT till 2008 and then stopped. And it's taken me maybe 10 years for me to be in front of a computer with someone and for them to go, oh, where is this? And for me not to go, I'll do it. I'll, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, this computer isn't working. And I'm get a goblin in the back of my head going, oh, you can fix this. You can yeah. fix this problem. Come on, my precious, let's do it. Um, so it, it, it's a very, it's a terrible habit I think IT people have of kind of trying to solve problems. But it's 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 meant that I take that into the comic work and, you know, all that sort of mm. stuff. And I did, I mean, I, I started blogging in the year 2000. Oh, um, actually, was blogging around 1997. My first blog was written. Wow on a, at a, a database that would uh, I'd type in uh, an update and I press a button that would create HTML files that would then have to be uploaded by FTP. My first webcam was a camera I'd bought that I realized if I took a photo every five seconds, I could store that photo locally and I could set up a web server on my own computer and people could watch that every five seconds. So I was Jesus like, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm, I'm way like, ahead of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is you don't even do you even know about the web comic stuff. I kind of the the iPhone comics thing that completely allowed me to leave my day job and just do comics. All of that stuff was all was all lurking in the background. But I I like process. I can't help it. And also, yeah. um, I do find myself thinking of funny things. I think that's quite funny. And being annoyed, I can't tell anyone. My wife doesn't care. My kids roll their eyes. So it's it goes on to Twitter. It's a, it's a form of therapy almost, or it, it, it really is therapeutic yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, good. I, I mean, I, I do genuinely sometimes post things and think I should be getting paid for this. These are quite good. <laughs> Fair. Uh, agreed. Yeah. Can I ask you, PJ, did you have um a kind of a, any formal art background, or were you always more kind of IT and computer side with your education? Oh, no, no, I. I I, I mean, I've, I've covered this in loads of podcasts, but I like around the age 14, computers and drawing were essentially the same paths to me. They were 
either one was as likely as the other. Um, and the only difference is at age 14, people were willing to pay me to work in computers, whereas I couldn't figure out how to make art pay. I couldn't even I couldn't even see the pathway to make art pay. It wasn't even I mean, I certainly wasn't good enough, but I couldn't see how even if you got good enough, I couldn't see how you would make people, you know, how, you, how does that work? How do you get yeah. people to pay you, to pay you money to do that? Whereas in computers, I was literally working at the age of 14. I was being paid to work at the age of 14. Like I was programming at 17, 18. Um, you know, this is going back 1987, 89, sort of early programming. I mean, I, again, I, I'm always covering things I've said in other podcasts, but, you know, I was that. one of the early whiz kids, you know, you know, do you have you ever heard the term a whiz kid? Like 12 year olds who knew what they're doing with the computers would be, oh, there's a whiz kid. Now it's like there's so many kids know what they're doing on computers. You don't even, that's not a free, it's I not know, yeah. you know, but it was there. It was that kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, so I mean, to me, there were two. There was absolutely no reason why I couldn't do both of those, or one was just as important as the other. Um, but as I say, working in computers at age fourteen, I did art O level, which was a kind of the first. You know, so you you do. I think now they're called GCSEs, but at that time they were O levels, uh, which is your first sort of formal qualification. And I failed my art O level at age sixteen or so. Um, and I got a B in computer, I think it was a B in computers old level. And so it was like, well, I mean, art's so subjective anyway. Mm. You know, what is the point in going down the education route with art and computers paying money? So I did computers for years and years and years and, and sort of always drew in the background. Like my pencil, you know, I would, I would, I was notorious for telephone doodles that would take up vast areas of paper mm, mm. you know i was like other people were drawing little grids and things i was i was drawing scenes and battles and, and whatever while i was on the telephone um and you know you'd occasionally get someone saying oh you should do that professionally but it was like i mean i saw what professionals were doing i saw what i was doing i was going yeah no that sounds like a, a daydream so i wouldn't worry too much about it but it was i think when i was about turning turning 30 in the year 2000 which was as a 2000 ad reader it was like this all felt significant because I remember reading 2080 mm -hmm, as a kid mm -hmm. thinking, wow, 2080 is so futuristic because like I'd be 30 and that's like, oh, I mean, that's yeah. so old, you know, <laughs> and just as the year 2000 was coming up, I'd left one day job and start I left a computer job to start a new computer job that was part time. And I'd taken the jobs very specifically because it was it was part time. I thought, well, I can probably pursue drawing a little bit more. Than I have been doing because I've always I'd always kept my hand and I was always doing like ninety five I think was my first published work which was for Fantagraphics uh, and awesome. I'd done some small press stuff but not very much and then ninety seven ninety eight I was started doing more small press stuff at two thousand eighty really did small press stuff and then um, come the year two thousand it was like this just felt like a big just you know it's the year two thousand and I'm turning thirty and two thousand eighteen's you know that was a big thing significant and I, yeah 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 it all just it was all building towards the significance and um it was like and I you know at this I wasn't married yet but it was like we we're gonna get you know at some point I'm gonna get married and then that that is that's your future locked in you know there, mm -hmm. you know what you can't have kids and go I've decided I'm going to entirely change my career that's not gonna happen so um yeah but then within I don't know like I think six or seven months I'd kind of 
gone. Uh, there was a first uh, um, at that point as well. 2000 AD had just been bought by Rebellion, which so previously it was with a, a publisher, IPC, I think it was, or Fleetway, who were publishing all sorts of things like My Little Pony and all sorts of stuff. And 2000 AD was just a weird thing they didn't know what to do with. And uh, Rebellion kind of came in and said, "We're a video games company, and we want to buy this comic off you." And they bought it. So. It was all a big change for 2000 AD around the year 2000 as well. Mm. And, so, and Andy Diggle was a new editor, and I had gone over to see Andy at a comic convention. Um, the first, uh, what they called it Dreadcon, which was a 2000 AD convention. And I bought him a big pile of stuff. It's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not expecting to get any work. I'm going to give you a big pile of stuff. And I want you to look at every single page, and <laughs> you'll see there's a slow, steady progression. You know, I'm not saying I'm good enough. I'm saying, mm. You look at the state. If you look at the rate of improvement and and the general direction of it, you'll see that in maybe three, four, five years, there's there'll be a quality I'll hit hopefully, and that might be good enough. But as it was, Andy had seen because at that point as well, um, Andy Diggle, who was editor, who went on then to write various things, including the losers and stuff. Um, Andy had was quite active online on the there were I don't know how many you guys remember message boards like the yeah, alt of course. comics 2008 was one of them there was alt dot whatever uh, comics kind of stuff and that was sort of the only social media there was at that point so you know you'd get to know writers and artists and uh, um, uh, various other people sort of involved in comics and that's that's Andy had got to know me through doing stuff there and I actually had seen me I'd set up a webcam again this is pre-youtube and pre all that stuff I'd set up a webcam to while I was drawing some stuff and he'd seen that video of me drawing um not video he'd seen it live um mm. and, and kind of went and he saw the drawing that I'd done he went oh is that the drawing you've done I went, yeah yeah says that's pretty good um yeah you're you're definitely getting better I'll give you some work he, he didn't look at any of the pages I uh, a big pile of sheets of like this thick and and he looked at none of them he just went to minute and I was part of me was slightly aggrieved it didn't quite work out the way I'd planned it it was like he didn't but he didn't look at all all of the pages I bought with me that seems unfair <laughs> I like I shouldn't have bought those I know I know it was the wrong thing to do but at the same time he didn't look at any of it he just glanced yeah. at the um and so failed successfully yeah well, yeah uh, yeah i'd rolled a six without without even you know realizing it um and then i had done some small press stuff with gordon rennie who was writing for dread at the time as well and i kind of texted or not texted nobody was texting in those days um i uh, emailed him and said look hey i'm Andy said he'd give me some work, and Gordon went, oh, I've just finished a dread I've sent to him. I'll ask him for you to do it. And so that's how I got my first dread. It was like that. It was sort of amazing. Uh, um, amazing. And then I had a grin on my face for two days. It was really sore. <laughs> were, you, were you still working the IT job at that point? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, was, I stayed in the IT job for another eight years after that. So it was not, it was not, I was not leaving that day job. I mean, it paid really well. I had holidays, and I got sick pay, and I got a pension. I was not leaving that yeah. job without being prized away from it, which mm. is what happened. Um, yeah, fair. In 2000, that's that's the that's the trouble with that sort of job, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah. It's I mean, comfort. The temptation to stay there is just like because I mean I could easily have done just as much work, and I did for eight years. I did a lot of work, comic work, while I was doing that stuff, and also I think I don't think you realize it at the time, but you kind of think to yourself, "Oh, I have so much freedom when all I do is comics," and you realize, "Oh no, I had all the freedom before. I had all the freedom." before I was being paid to draw, to do whatever mm. I wanted. And now that I'm being paid to draw, I don't have that much freedom anymore. It's yeah. like, now I've got to work to get paid. Yeah, um, I, like, I tattoo for a living. And uh, I'm in Dublin Inc. And uh, 
quite often I get people messing me about like having flash, which is what we would call like pre-designed artwork, you know? But like, I think like if you asked me like, even like say three years ago, four years ago, I would have had loads of flash, you know, mm. I don't anymore. It's if I had time to draw flash, like I have, you know, time to say, do something else in the yeah. sense of like, I'm so busy with the customers and clients and their demands that like, I just don't, and I would love to do or draw flash, but like when your art becomes your profession, your like kind of your nine to five, they're, yeah. they're, sometimes the personal stuff does hitmen hit don't kill people for fun anymore That's yeah this is it yeah exactly I mean, it's, yeah. it's like you know it's like a, you know, I could kill this guy but oh, is this job that's yeah. a job yeah 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 or they they have the expression um it's the the shoemaker's children never have shoes that's the that's the other oh. you don't really get to do stuff for yourself you know it's yeah it's, yeah um but you know that's, you, that's you live expression. and you learn um yeah. but I, like in 2008 i i came up with um an iphone comic idea like at that point there was no a new iphone comics and i came up with an iphone comic idea um uh, which was written by al ewan and and software it was basically software to read comics on the iphone and as the app store just opened and um it essentially apple kicked it back because it was too violent it was like oh you've got to resubmit this without the violence but it was um a futuristic uh 2000 ad style a uh, future sports game called Murder Drone, where the only way to score a goal is to chop somebody's head off and score it with their head. So there was no, there was no way to reduce the violence because it was, it was the over the top violence. It was like yeah. satirical violence. It was stupid violence. Mm. Um, it was like Wiley Coyote. It was like it's like doing Wiley Coyote and or Bugs Bunny and and somebody saying, yeah, we we really love that uh, Wiley Coyote gets his comeuppance. Could you do it without the violence? You go, well, then it's just horrible. Then isn't it? It's just just a sad little story of the <laughs> thing that doesn't get stuff it's not nice um so we put out a press release and that they it went nuts worldwide because it was first amendment issues and app the app store just opened and apple had banned a couple of apps so there was i remember they banned an app that was basically a knife a picture of a knife that when you shook the phone like you were stabbing someone it would play the psycho music I remember yeah. that. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So the Apple, yeah. it, was, it went worldwide. And our app, because it was comics that had been, and so comics are, oh, freedom of speech and First Amendment stuff. And, and we, I mean, that wasn't really what we were thinking. We were just going, oh, I, just, I really think this is a thing that could work. Um, and they banned it. And we ended up, um, NBC Universal, so happened within like a three week period. Uh, we worldwide publicity, uh, NBC Universal contacted as we were chatting to dc and marvel at the time as well um because there were no other app readers this is no mm. competition out there um at that point um and nbc universal asked us to adapt our app for reading the heroes comics that they had and we kind of went yeah okay and i left my day job that day i oh, went okay, to awesome. said i am i'm leaving and they went oh you can't do that i went I think I can. And oh. they went, uh, uh, are you sure? Like, I've been there eight years. Are you, are you sure? There was a lot of stuff because the financial crisis had just wasn't, we were on the cusp of mm. it and things were being weird. And you could tell things were being weird because I, I worked for a charity and I was the IT support guy in the charity. And we were watching the housing market kind of just shoot up and up and up and up. And like, one of the big, for a lot of charities, one of the big income sources they have is, um, uh, people dying and they leave their houses to the charity and what would have happened is uh, we old Beryl would have bought our house in 1939 for five pound and three squirrels or something uh, and then <laughs> she is now you know 90 years old or whatever and she kind of goes well I've got a thousand pounds saved away from my two sons 
I'll give them that money. I'm a £200 house. I'll just leave it to the charity. By which time the house has accrued, uh, you know, was worth two million, you know, mm-hmm. just over time. But a lot of these old people didn't realise that. They just thought their houses were their house that was worth, you know, and the and and the, the housing market was going nuts. I mean, it, I literally, because I was looking to buy a house, this 2007, 2008, uh, every day, yeah, every day I'd look at the houses and the houses would shoot up in price, just shoot up and shoot up. And you'd be looking at it going, there's something I, I don't know. And I'm genuinely thinking, I'm, I don't understand this. I can't understand. I can't make head nor tail of it. So is I'm stupid, and I know I'm stupid. And I'd go to our head of finance, who was a very, very smart money guy. And I go, John, I don't understand this. And John went, don't understand that either. And I went, there's something wrong. There's yeah. something seriously wrong. Um, so at that point, then a bunch of the the head department heads in my place left, which kind of left the the charity I was working for. We were a bit sort of. It's like everything was falling up, down from under us and you were starting to see money, not money worries, but you were starting to see that things were not right generally and high income was going to start coming in. Uh, and I think it was like, because the, the bottom fell out of the housing market around that time. And so it was like, mm, it looked like looked like my job was in peril or maybe, I, I just didn't know where, where I stood because my boss had gone and uh, the new guy was a nice guy, but like, he didn't know my role, really. And and it's funny when you're the IT guy in a place where you're the only IT guy, nobody knows what you do. You might as well be a warlock. They don't they don't have a clue, you know. They just, you come along, fix a computer and vanish. And, mm. and they go, ooh, did that? <laughs> you know, the machines don't work. Call upon the necromancer. And down I, down I come and it's like, well, I've, I've done some mystical incantations and I've left again. And I've, you know, cleared a paper jam. And it's like, <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't understand. Um, so... I kind of, I just, I, I felt at that point, it's like something's going to happen to my job if I don't make something happen to my job. It could be my job when I've been fine. I mean, in the end, it might well have been there was a bit of a bump and then things were settled down. But at that point, it was like, I don't know where my job's going to mm. be. Uh, and so I kind of went in and go, I'm leaving. I'm going tomorrow. Don't, you know, you can, if you need anything, give me a shout, but I'm going to work uh, for these guys doing the, the, the comic stuff. And I thought, I've done it. I've broken away from computers and now I work in comics. And what I was doing in comics was writing a PHP-based backend for a comic book reader. And I was like, no, no, this is more computers. This yeah, I was going to say, this, did you feel like this, comics at all? No, this so. is programming. This is yeah. just hardcore programming. And it's like, oh, I mean, I, I did like, I did, there's... um. I'm going to tell you this is boring, but I it's like it's when you know sometimes you do a thing and you're quite proud of it, and in one field it is very good. It's like winning a medal for something, right? But nobody knows what that. Nobody like you go. I've won a medal for mibble scribbling, and people go, "What the flip is mibble scribbling?" And you go, "You don't understand." In one very specific area, it's amazing, but like you don't care <laughs> yes, about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, fair. So uh, there's there's a thing called Cake PHP. Cake's PHP is a this is a boring stuff. Brian might know all this stuff. It's, right? it's, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a thing called Ruby on Rails. Ruby is a programming language. Rails is a way to develop apps within Ruby on Rails. It allows you to super fast develop apps with all sorts of backends. Uh, there's a, a similar thing for PHP. PHP is a, a, a pre-HTML processor language, which is for programming backends of uh, stuff. And it's a clone of Ruby on Rails, but it's called Cake PHP. And I had used Cake PHP, and I ended up developing some big chunks of it. And they asked at one point somebody asked me to be a project leader of it. I'm like, well, 
well, this is not, I'm not, I've got more into computers somehow and this is not what I meant to do. <laughs> so, so I ended up, Mental. Um, I, I took, I can't wait, there was a big chunk of cash. It wasn't an awful lot of cash. I think it was about six grand. And I went, if I take that six grand, that should do me for six months. Yeah. And I've got enough work to do me for three months, which means in three months, I need to find, you know, within three months, I need to find more work from 2008. And that's what I did. Um, I mean, the first year was kind of good. The second year was terrible. Um, third year was kind of good. It has taken me maybe eight years to get to the place I was in terms of income that was close to my when I had the day job and comics. When I had mm. the day job and comics, I was earning enough to pay all my bills. And I was earning comic money, which was not, you know, can be good, can be bad, but it's extra money. You know, when mm. you don't need it, it's extra money. So it's like, oh, let's go to a convention. Let's go to a holiday. Let's do that. That's, that was great. And then suddenly you're only earning comic money. It's like, let's go to a convention. No, that costs money. Have you seen how much money it goes? It costs, oh, I'm not doing that. So um, doing that was a kind of, it was the only way I would ever break that kind of, that temptation to, to you know, just break it. It couldn't happen twice, you know, but at the same time, there was no other way of doing it, you know. So that that's how I've ended up just doing comics in a frantic, and when I did that in 2008, it was like, I don't know, I don't know half my time, I don't know what I'm going to do because I've got enough work, but half the time I don't know what I'm going to do. So I ended up, um, I was selling paintings in a market stall my own paintings and caricature paintings and stuff. Uh, just a, a desperate kind of grab for any art job that I could mm. think of because 2080 was still really the only game in town for me. Um, I'd done a little bit of American work, but it wasn't very well paid. I think I'd done um, a book called Fearless for 2000, or for, for Image Comics at the time, but I didn't earn a penny on that. Like literally no money at all. So, um, Jeez. you know, so, and it's what, it was four issue miniseries. So it took a while. It took a while to start earning money and also earning money, but also having enough companies that I work for that I I know that like if there's no work from A company, I'll check B company. And if mm. they don't have anything, C company. And ideally you have three projects on the go at once and, and that makes sure that you're not going to have that fall down, nothing to do. So, but well, it only are fast. Well, I'd like to ask you, cause like, uh, so I, I study animation and illustration in college mm. and in my in the summer before my final year i got a, a wee comic book gig for some just like kind of basically bser online through deviant dart or something like a canadian guy but mm. he had he, i was getting paid for these pages and i was doing them and like, they looked awful you know it is what it is but uh but i remember like finding it like at that age i was like 23 say for example right mm. I, 20, I think i was probably 22 but it's like i remember being so reclusive you know so reclusive i worked all summer i worked hard mm. like my friends doing their jobs if they're outdoors or in retail hospitality whatever and i had nothing to show for it i was getting like i'd say god if i was getting like 10 euros a page if mm. i was you know what i mean like mm. it was it wasn't even that i thought like you know yeah so i'm living at home with my parents this is gonna be enough like i'll be fine you know it's comics i'm gonna make comics i'm gonna get paid for it but no it was and i thought the, the biggest struggle was the reclusiveness of it and then i, I kind of did a whole flip on it i went into tattooing which i think is one of the more social kind of mm. art forms because you're literally just with the canvas or with the, i wouldn't say canvas but that's you know in terms <laughs> yeah. of i mean like in terms of relating it to art you know, yeah, yeah. you're you're the person you're working on is a I mean, person not that many Not many canvases can talk back. To exactly. You, but yeah, you know. yeah. But yeah, but like, but you know what I mean. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, I I think 
I mean, if you're what you're saying there is, PJ, are you a lone wolf? I am a lone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love COVID at the end. So, you know, in terms of lockdown, it would suit me fine, you know, after so long. But uh, but you, you, like the, you like the recluses and stuff. You like the kind well, of, that's, that's, you hadn't had an issue with it, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I love being left on my own. I mean, yeah. I, I love chatting to people and I love getting out and going to conventions, but I like fundamentally to recharge, I like being on my own. And, and, um, I mean, the hardest part for, of lockdown for me was that everyone else was at home. Was like, yeah. <laughs> Why are you all here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a little while. Um, yeah. And my wife, will do it. my wife knows that, like, uh, I, I will I will deny absolutely deny this is this is true but I you know if she goes we're going away on holiday will you be okay on your own inside I'm going <laughs> yeah yes um, I, yeah. I don't know I don't know Brian but that's definitely me as well one of the best one of the best ten day periods I ever had was when everybody I knew seemed to just go away and it's like I don't I don't think I spoke for three days I, just, yeah. I was just drawing at my desk and just like yeah. feeding the cats cup of tea to a yeah. drawn go for I a d- walk I just, I just had a lovely weekend and my own my girlfriend was in Cambridge you know but uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it I, I watched Excalibur you know it was it's a good really weekend well, yeah yeah I, I honestly think the I would definitely be much more comfortable on my own all the time and be very uncomfortable in, in a situation like this but for the fact I worked in IT from the age of 14 like because yeah. I was it was face to face with people explaining things to people constantly you know my first job was was working in a computer shop so I was 14 talking to customers um and you very quickly kind of you know all the the jaggedy edges of of your interactions with people start getting rounded and smooth in a certain shape mm-hmm. and that shape is usually let me explain things <laughs> you know <laughs> which is not ideal in every situation but in a lot of situations it's handy um, but it also, I'm quite confident on stage and, uh, you know, in front of uh, people, I'm, I'm confident, happy on a panel and stuff. But I think fundamentally at my very core and essence, I like being on my own. I like I like solitude. I like quiet. Like if I'm on my own working, I will frequently not, I don't even like background noises and, you know, I, I everything will be off. It'll just be silent. You know, that's, that's stuff that I, I kind of miss now. I've got two kids. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, yeah, you sort of get get it back. I mean, I definitely like my favorite times at Christmas used to be when my wife and I were were dating. Um, I'd go up to see her at Christmas time, but there there would be a period between being at my parents' house and being at my house where we my wife my wife and I then lived together. Um, still do. I mean, obviously. Um, but she would have gone up to her mom's house, and there was this little period on Christmas Day where I would be in my house alone. <laughs> And it was Christmas and everything was quiet and peaceful. Mm. And that was lovely. I see, I like okay. Christmases like that. So, uh, um, so yes, that, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it definitely, I mean, I do think it's naturally a healthy thing to want to be on your own all the time. Yeah, for sure. Exactly, I think it can be very easy to kind of think this is what I want and then you get it. And then after a while you're, you really are going stir crazy and going, this mm. is not is not good and I've, I've kind of seen it with my youngest son who does like being on his own he does like sitting and drawing and stuff but he can get quite sort of overwhelmed emotionally when he's been on his own for too long yeah. um yeah i think it's fair to be like you know kind of equally introvert as you are extrovert mm. you know like to be comfortable on your own is fine as long as you're also comfortable to be with others yeah. and socializing you know yeah uh, but look people people go through different things at different stages of, of life you know you know it doesn't yeah. mean like everybody develops the same no, okay. no. You know, people catch up. Will you see this for a segue? Uh, talking <laughs> of changes over a period of life, 
I watched Exc- I recommended we watch Excalibur. <laughs> That yeah. is that is some excellent segueing. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, this is this is um, Brian, as we said a little bit earlier, had seen it from a young age. Kevin, you hadn't seen it. So it's weird because I knew when people when anybody says Excalibur and they reference this movie, mm. I know instantly in my head the DVD cover with the kind of the oil painting. It's a kind of it's kind of oil painting esque or something. It's like yeah. Well, you know, in my in my memory and the incredibly shining armor but realizing it was more of a of a serious movie than it was uh you know clash of the titans chasing the agronauts do, do yeah. you know do you know what i mean yeah yeah I it, it was less mystical than but a both you know in my head it's like yeah. more of a serious representation of arthur but then when you yeah. watch it it's probably the because i've been to merlin's castle i think it's in cornwall i believe mm-hmm. but Tantagino. uh say again Tantagino. Is that it? Is that that was, my wife will kill me. She's Cornish, so she she. Oh well, it's a beautiful <laughs> place. I bet. Yeah, I've been there, but uh, it's obviously the most realistic telling of the Arthurian legend. Uh, yeah, I mean it's the most realistic telling, except it's it's not realistic at all. I mean, it, okay. it, it really, it feels it feels like it, it feels like a sort of drug dream of you know it, it's got yes, dreamlike yeah. qualities. I think. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, really that, kind of set it overexposure on. on the shine on the armor and the green yeah. lights and it's like I mean, really the, trippy the first thing i think that strikes me about it is that the audio quality of it it it, it seems like every single mm. thing is adr so everyone has yeah. re-recorded their speech over the video and that gives the audio a kind of quite a crisp and distinctly odd quality yeah aiden yeah. literally texted us when he was watching he texted us like I you must have had it on for like two minutes, but you're like, eh, this whole thing feels like ADR, you know? Yeah, I I think I got twenty minutes in, and I went, the whole movie has to have been ADR. Even just like, not even like it was a choice, but like they were shooting outside. Everywhere was a forest. Everybody's yeah. in armor, clanking around the place. Yeah, yeah. And like, it feels like it just had to have been a necessity. Like, no piece of sound they got there was either horses, mud, wind, yeah. howling extras, howling mountains, extras. But even then, I I I kind of feel like. I, I actually feel like it was almost a deliberate choice. I feel like there's a certain audio quality to it that that mm. is almost the audio is almost hallucinogenic. It, mm. It's like it's like when you have a dream and you hear a real voice coming from in, outside that dream. It's it's got elements of that in it. Mm. You're kind of you know it's it's all it's like a lucid dream. The whole thing yeah, is fair. like yeah. a dream. I think, um, and I, I mean, I, I think it's a magnificent film. I don't know if you, if you want to cut to the chase, and then we'll talk. No, about no, it no, no. I, 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 I think I want to, I want to quiz you a little bit more on it because I want to draw it out. I want to quiz you on it a little bit more okay. though, because okay. this, this is you suggested this, right? And it's like, is this a film you saw as a, a very young age that? I've seen it, a few times so I, th- I mean I'm sure the first time I saw it I mean it was 10 or 11 years old on a black and white telly up in the top floor of the attic room in, in our house when I was you know very very young and impressionable and desperately trying to find some filth on TV uh, and <laughs> this this was kind of the closest yes. thing to it um, Fair. you know and I mean there's odd things I've since discovered like the the uh, the girl who is um, uh, King Arthur's uh, mother and is kind of in that sort of uh, vaguely rapey scene is actually yeah. John Berman's daughter. Vaguely. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's definitely. Egrain. Yeah, I mean, it's unpleasant. There's a lot of unpleasantness about mm-hmm. it, I think. But I, I, those are deliberate choices. Those are not. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my, that's my father phone in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's that's not a scene that isn't kind of 
incidental. I mean, I think that's sort of, I think that's important, that scene, because mm. it kind of sets the idea that, I think from the very start, it looks like Merlin, Merlin's been trying to build uh, an idyllic kind of England, an idyllic kind of king, and he thinks he has it, an Uther Pendragon, who mm. is King Arthur's uh, father. And that when uh, Uther goes, I must have her, Merlin, I must have mm. her, you've got to help me. That's when Merlin kind of realises, oh, no, you're just, you're corrupt and filthy, yeah. as, as bad as everyone else. Fine, I'll do, you know, I'll do this. But, you know, actually, maybe if, if I do this, what comes comes from you is going to be something I can work on better. You know, yeah, yeah I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly implied, I think, that um, somehow Uther, I don't know, I mean, it really starts with with a battle where Uther is kind of, uh, I think it's King Cornwall, Lord Cornwall or someone, he, he's, he's fighting this guy. In order to control all of England, and this is mm-hmm. this is going to be all the be all and end all. But we don't really see how Merlin meets Uther. We don't find mm-hmm. out any of that. There's no backstory yeah, to that. Yeah. It starts kind of from that moment. So you can read into that. I mean, I I choose to read into that that he's come to Uther late. I my feeling is uh, at that that scene and that that area is basically Merlin going, okay, this is a washout. Let's start from scratch. Let's see what it's like if I can raise the child of this to see where where it goes. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels, it feels like a little bit of choice. I mean, this and I don't. I'm not honestly not that familiar with the King Arthur myth and legends. I think mm. we all think we sort of are, but we're probably no. We know the general no. gist of it. Yeah, the general. I no, we, we, we I was obsessed. Right. I was obsessed with it, like oh, as really? a kid. Okay. I, yeah, like I. Okay. I read so much about it so that, that's one of the reasons why I, I recorded the, the film and then I was watching the film I was like I'm too young for this but like <laughs> when, when I went back years later mm-hmm. to actually try read as much of it like in detail because all I'd read was just you know kind of you know kind of summaries and annotations yeah. of things kind of like kid-friendly versions and stuff but I, I kind of knew a lot of it but when you go back and try read it as you know as an adult and try read like the sources of stuff it is it's kind of why the film works. I think it, it's it's incoherent. Like it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's the same with it's like with Norse mythology. If you kind of it's like okay, well Loki is his own like is this horse that yeah. Odin rides is Loki's mm. daughter. It's this kind of stuff. It just yeah, they're all they kind of get lost. They're they're all yeah. kind of mismatch of. I mean, sometimes there's sort of bits of other legends that someone's gone. Let's throw that. Let's wrap that into Arthur. And, yeah, you yeah. know, and this gives you a coherent narrative that kind of it sort of explains everything at the same time. And I mean, the, the other thing as well is uh, like the visually it's stunning. I think visually it's stunning, even for the, you know, for the time period, there's no, there's obviously no CGI in it, you know, it's all, but it, it's quite stagey as well. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's come from a theatrical background The the um, uh, Excalibur notably, I think is, Every time you see it, there's got a green sheen on it. So there's obviously a green light. Mm. Well, Stephen, I, I was watching a, a scene of it earlier. Again, I was just like, I was talking to my mother about, you know, we're going to go and talk about Excalibur. And I was showing her clips on YouTube. And we got to mm-hmm. the scene where Arthur is knighted in mm. the in the, mm. in the the moat or in, in the water. Scene, yeah. yeah. But I was looking at it going, even the way this is, now he's kneeled. And the, the knight uh, performing on the, the knighting, be knighting mm-hmm. him. Um, everybody's staged around him, the couple of horses, the other knights, down to a V in the centre of the screen, and Merlin, yeah. dead centre of the screen, looking at it. It's very purposefully composed, these shots, yeah. you know. I it's, think it's classical in that sense, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I love that scene. I, I love kind of Merlin's reaction, which is where he's kind of going, "Oh, I didn't see this. Mm, mm, this is completely unexpected. This is I know it's kind of delight. There's a delight in Merlin and everything that he's he's doing. I mean, Merlin is fantastic in this. He's superb. Yeah, such, such <laughs> a weird. So many weird choices that just I sort think, of work. Yeah, I think they 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 said to the director of this movie that he could absolutely do it as long as he didn't uh, cast that guy as Merlin. But he was just like, "No, nah, fuck it, I have to." Yeah. Which is kind of a weird one, you know. Is that a piece of trivia, is it? Or is yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 that's true. That's true. Yeah, I think whatever production company got behind, obviously producers decided to fund the movie. They said that they would have like, wanted a name star as, as Merlin. Mm. I would have thought because Merlin is kind of, kind of. I mean, it's a, it's a weird sort of narrative because we're following Merlin, then we're following Arthur, then we're following mm. um, Lancelot a little bit, and then we're kind of Percival, following um, Percival. And it becomes yes, Percival yeah. in the end. It, and, it is and, strange, yeah. Yeah, so so you've got kind of multiple leads at multiple points. It certainly yeah. becomes this person's film, then this person's film, then this person's. I mean, at so, you know, at one point Merlin is just, yeah, I'm going to piss off now. I'll see you Yeah, no, he just disappears for ages. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think I think it was Liam Neeson's theatrical debut. Yes, and, yeah, and possibly Gabriel Burns. Well I, well, I don't know, but I know definitely Liam Neeson. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but but that that's as good a point as any to go that cast. Like I didn't look it up. I knew I knew Liam. No, sorry, I knew Helen Mirren was in it. Mm. Yeah. And I had forgotten Patrick Stewart was in it. And then as yeah. I'm watching it, I'm like, that's Gabriel Byrne, and that's Kieran Hines, and that's Liam Neeson, and that's the the that's Richard from the the, 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 up the keeping up appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. He was brilliant. He was in the south of Ireland. I think he he was living down there, so um, it became a kind of. I mean, it, it's long before Game of Thrones came to Ireland. Uh, uh, yeah. that was filmed there already. But yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's a stunning film. I do, I do, and it's quite funny in lots of parts and. A lot of it's Merlin just being mm-hmm. kind of silly, you know. There's yeah. there's lots of that that goes on. Um, there's a great scene that where he's trying to catch a little fish, and he and kind of go, oh, there's always something cleverer, and then he kind of falls yeah. in. Um, it's just it's just a, it's got lots in it. That it did that you it, think? Did you think it was kind of a strange? Like maybe I'm completely wrong. I interpreted it incorrectly. But uh, did you think it was kind of strange how one moment of the movie, Arthur almost came across as a pacifist? Mm. You know. And then, kind of in the latter half, he's very different from that. It's like the character development. It's kind of, it's kind of strange. It it turns, it takes a it turn lurches, real fast. Yeah, there, there, I th- I think there's there's what's happening is there's a lurch in time. Yes, in a, yeah, oh, there is, that, yeah. That, that maybe we don't. That maybe isn't communicated as yeah. well as as it could be. That mm. you know, there's there's a sort of uh, here we are. Uh, Arthur's a child, effectively. You know, he's a teenager, and then here we are now. Arthur's king. And now here we are, Arthur's been king for 10, 15 years. Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's no sort of, uh, and now we're going to show you a montage of what the kingdom's like for trying, you know, this is what happened over those last 10 years. It's like straight to, no, we're 10 years later. And it's, and I, I mean, part of that maybe it's because they're sort of hitting, trying to hit all the story points of King Arthur's, you know, trying mm. to get as much of the myth and the legend in there as possible. Yeah. And um, it's that kind of dream logic as well that it just, yeah. you know, it, it can just, it, it can, can change on a moment's notice and it's it all just makes sense in the context of it it's yeah. it's we're here now this this happened yeah. all this other stuff has happened and i mean i i buy it like i i completely buy that arthur was a good king and mm. then over the course of whatever amount of time it was that you know i wouldn't say he stopped being a good king but kind of lost focus and lost you know this this is the the myth that they're telling us arthur sort of loses focus and then we're going to veer heads off and um but there's there i think I, I think early doors. There's a moment where where 
King Arthur does that. Oh, he breaks the sword when he's fighting a Lancelot. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's an early uh, view of what will happen later whenever the kind of, uh, you know, Lancelot betrays him or Guinevere betrays him and, and he kind of, he looks like he's going to kill them both and that, that, that hatred kind of imbibes the sword, you know, that corruption, mm-hmm. but, you know, kind of that corruption of him, that corruption of the sword and that corruption of England are all one and the same. And, and uh, I think that's sort of, that's an early look at it, that kind of, um, I will be a good man, but you're beating the shit out of me, so I'm going to try to hell with you. Um, and I, th- I think that's just given into temptation is what's happened mm. there. Yeah. Uh, it's that kind of, um, that chasing that ideal as well, that, you know, mm. He's supposed to be this this perfect representation of, yeah. of what the kingdom can be, but it's it's that's the kind of the tragedy and the beauty of the story is like chasing that ideal to a fault is what yeah. is what ultimately brings it brings it down. It's, it's like he's established this law and order, mm. and then Lancelot and Guinevere have kind of Overturned broken that, and it, yeah. He, yeah, and he's got a it's it's like well, if it's going to be this ideal thing, if I'm going to uphold this ideal, I have to uphold it to a fault, and 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 it is to a fault ultimately, yeah. and that's that's the kind of that's yeah, the tragedy of of the legend as well. Yeah, I mean, to me, the inter- an interesting thing I think is that it feels like Merlin's motivation is to create a perfect England, a perfect utopian, you know, Camelot, and it's it's to get to that, and he gets there, and he goes, well, I'm done now, I'm going to sort off here. Um, but but things change. Things change yeah, with the, the human element almost. You know, it's like murdering yeah. some sort of god or demigod, and uh, then you know leave humans around devices and power corrupts. You know. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then um, so they and then of course um, like Arthur's sister kind of gloms on to Merlin and goes, ah, go show me some of your magic. And who wouldn't be tempted by Ellen Merlin asking, ah, show yeah. me some tricks. Um, and it, it's an interesting relationship between the two of them because it, it's like why why is Merlin bothering with her at all? But it but you can see he's sort of tempted, you know. You can see there's. Do you, do you there's think t- there's anything to the idea that he he knows what he set upon her mother? You know, he knows well, he what he did to that family. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's maybe as well. It's a kind of Merlin gets off a little on people wanting things from him, you know. Yeah. And and once a king is done, he doesn't need a Merlin anymore. You know, it's only when it's only when things are tragic or bad that Merlin's required. Whereas uh, Morgana is kind of I I want things from you. I Morgana want... was Arthur's sister, wasn't it? Yes. 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 Arthur's yeah. No, I was, I was just thinking there. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who fought in her child again? Uh, Arthur. <laughs> in the in the in the John Borman, Arthur does. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, that was. <laughs> so I, I well, just like maybe I watched stuff, and I was just like, no, I'm putting that away. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, and I, I mean, I don't know how it plays out in the actual myths and legends because mm. I know there's a couple of characters have been amalgamated into uh, Morgana, but in oh, sure, in the yeah. film, obviously, I, I mean, she does the same trick that um, uh, uh, Merlin okay. did for um, Uther and kind of transforms herself to look like Guinevere. And then she kind of comes in, seduces Arthur, and has a child. That child, by the way, uh, as a young child, is Charlie Borman, who uh, went on to be on the motorbike show. With long way round, and a long yeah. way round, and is the son oh, of yes. uh, John Borman, the director. So, oh, uh, oh, okay, okay. As much as possible, trying to cast family and friends. Absolutely, he did. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, his, his I, daughter was the Lady in the Lake. Yeah, no, his daughter was. Um, was the uh, Uther's? Uh, I think. Victim. I think. He had, 
I think he had two daughters, maybe, because I'm oh, pretty sure I read. I pre- no, again, let's see. Someone can fact check that. I mean, we need, but, yeah, you, every show needs a fact checker somewhere. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Working what on we it. really need is one of those. You remember the. Um, the pop vox pop the little pop-up things in the music videos little, yeah yeah here's a true fact <laughs> yeah like that there um yes so uh yeah yeah i mean that's the that's the gist of the bad guy i mean the bad guy is is of course uh, arthur's son and his sister it's or his yeah. half sister um listen i mean i mean sister well, that would be gross half sister baby mama yeah. um yeah. And that then that suit of armor is great too. That sort of gold suit. It is great. so iconic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of my like when I was watching it again, um, my first thought was how much of I don't know if you've seen Raised by Wolves, Ridley Scott's Raised by Wolves. I got. I think I I nearly finished the first series. Right. Okay. Well, when I first saw Raised by Wolves, I thought this is what's really interesting about this is that uh, Ridley Scott has kind of gone. What if sci-fi continued and there wasn't a Star Wars? What if like 1930s yeah. sci-fi just kept going yeah. and there was never a star wars to reinvent it what if yeah. that's the sci-fi what we ended up with now and i it, loved it, it visually yeah, the... yeah but i actually haven't watched uh, uh excalibur i i kind of come around to thinking oh this looks like he's really influenced by excalibur there's mm-hmm. a beam logic to it and yeah. you know the the there's sort of the myth the mithril the the religious aspect to mm-hmm. it and stuff it's got this kind of weird similar sort of dream logic to it and, and you know i thought that was there, interesting. there's a, a thing yeah. like i'm going to come back to that immediately but i was just going to say there's, there's <laughs> this thing i really liked about um uh merlin sort of explaining this concept of the dragon the dragon is in the earth and the stones and the thing yes, like this, this idea of a, a thing it's that is force it's the force. The dragon is so associated <laughs> with, you know, the Welsh dragon, Britain and, and, and St. George and stuff. And to sort of tie that into that sort of knights and dragons thing oh, as no, this concept. That rack. That's all I remember. That rack and so on. But what I, what I was going to say on that is um, I definitely got, you, you know, uh, Legend, Ridley Scott's Legend as yes, well with yeah. Tom Cruise. Like that's another one in this sort of dream logic, ethereal sort of just trance out kind of vain sort of film where there's so much going on visually whether or not you end up loving the narrative that happens in that movie Films there's so much too much on plot they should, yeah. they should concentrate on sort of dream essence yeah kind of woo. don't yeah. know what's going on who cares doesn't this matter this film is designed to be we're, found at two in the morning yeah. on a small television a, in a, in a, with a Zardos playing immediately afterwards that's the yeah. <laughs> that's the other mad John Borman one um, is that him as well? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> okay. Just lucky oh, I picked uh, uh, Excalibur and not Zardoz. <laughs> I'm connecting so many dots here as well because I was talking about. Um, I was talking about. Uh, I, I briefly mentioned to you that like I watched this and went, do you know what I need to watch right after this is The Green Knight because I haven't yes, seen yeah. it. Green, and again, yeah, talk. Such an obvious kind of. It goes so directly into it. This. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it feels like it's, it belongs with it. Um, I mean, it feels like if it, if there were a sequel to King Arthur, it would be the Green Knight. Which again, uh, and it I'm even it even name checks that at the start of the movie, where it goes, um, the much is known of the boy who pulled the sword from the stone, but that is yeah. not this story. This is not that king, and then it mm, goes yeah. off. But I did start to watch it a few times. It looks awesome. Part of Excalibur, actually. which is I'm of a generation that watched the goodies so I cannot see the font they use at the start of Excalibur without immediately thinking it's the goodies Goodies. (laughs) it's it's such a 70s font 
that it, it immediately, I mean, I don't know what they do now. I don't know if they'd use a kind of Celtic font or whether yeah. they'd, just, they'd stick with something very uh, subtle, kind of typewritten or, or whatever. But you mm. certainly wouldn't get that groovy 70s vibe. Yeah, yeah. If you were well, doing that, like, I, I think that's a, a great point. Like, as as this was the first time me seeing Excalibur. So, like, I really enjoyed it, but I was also like, whoa, they'd make different decisions now, even just trying to, like, narrative or hold things together. And following into the Green Knight then, we have these mini episodic things where we have time lurches or stuff, as you say, yeah. but we get a little bit of text on screen going, you know, an yeah. encounter with St. Winifred, a beheading in the Green Chapel. Yeah, yes. It kind of breaks it up for you yeah, a bit. You know, Alex, you're right, actually. The, you know, King Arthur maybe could have done with something like that, and Excalibur mm. could have done with something just as a kind of chapter break between segments. I think maybe, maybe it was a mistake to let it run, but that might have been a decision of the time of the style, you know, the, mm. like the, even you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch films that were set in the 1800s, and my brain went, "Oh, this must have been filmed in the 1800s," because yeah. that, that's when it was set. So, like films like Excalibur, completely through me, they were like, "Oh yeah, this must have been filmed in 1343 or something." I don't know. Um, so, but you really you kind of come to it and you're like, "Oh no, it was filmed in the 70s." Now that explains so many choices and so many things is doing. I think actually the films don't age as much as the trailers do. When you ever watch an old trailer, you kind of you watch it and you go, "Wow, this is not the way trailers are made now." This yeah, 100%. Did you watch the trailer for Excalibur? No, but it's on the extras. I have. I, right. I bought it on um, Apple's iTunes a few years ago. Actually, I started watching it a few years ago, and I kind of forgot it. And and when you were asking about things to watch, I went Excalibur. I've already started. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got it. Uh, but it, it, the trailer is the only extra that it's got. And I've I've right. been told the or I've heard the DVD has a really good John Borman. Um, commentary on on it. If you ever pick up the DVD somewhere, so I have the DVD at home for sure, man. But I'm sh- like 100. My dad has this on DVD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this yeah. is very much a dad film. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, well that, that's that's the other thing. I was talking to a mate about watching this, and he went, "My father loves this film, and every so often he sits me down in front of it and goes, isn't it beautiful?'" Yeah, one of my close friends said his dad loves this movie. He doesn't as well. quite connect, but. <laughs> He just gets such a beautiful shot and he's tearing up as he rides out. Like he told me this. Uh, the problem I'm having is I'm of the dad generation now. I was like, oh, I can't believe people's dads. Because my dad, I don't think he even knows this movie exists. But right. like I'm like, oh, this movie's amazing. Mm. <laughs> well, my, well, my dad's one of my dad's favorite movies. It doesn't matter if he's watched it the week before, if he's flicking through channels and it's halfway, if it's close to the end and it's just started. Braveheart. He'll watch Braveheart yeah. all the time, every time. Yeah, that's it's very much a generational dad thing. That's every generation of dad has their own kind of island, a, 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 a castle-based medieval-esque film that they must yeah. love. Yeah. Moment of time, and that your dad's got Braveheart, and my, <laughs> my you know, I've got the uh, Excalibur. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's also there's elements of Lord of the Rings in there as well. Like, you know, they're very. Clear. He wanted he. He, John, what's the director's name? Sorry, uh, John, John Borman. Borman. Yeah, he was. Yeah, they was talking to him doing Lord of the Rings. He wanted to do Lord of the Rings apparently before this, yeah. and they said no. So his alternative was to do uh, Arthur. So yeah. a lot of it, like a lot of it, kind of is his kind of like just sneaking a little bit of like, yeah, like if I was to do Lord of the Rings, it would look a little bit like this, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean. It's yeah, I mean that end bit where he's kind of he's gone off and the, the well the whole thing of Merlin talking about you know it's our time has passed mm. you know our time of magic is gone our time has passed it's all like if that were uh, like if you cut to that in the middle of Lord of the Rings 
that yeah. would not feel weirdly out of place. It would feel like, oh yeah, it's all of a piece. Um, that kind of reminiscent, of, uh, that sort of magic is going. There, there's talk as well of, oh, there's a, a new world. There's the one God is here to replace us all and, and so on. So it's it's kind of, yeah. I mean, I, do you have any concept of whether or not they, they were throwing money at this? Or was I mean, looking at it, it looks like they threw money at it. Or, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know because it's it's sort of, you can't really, t- I, I can't really tell. Like I, I say, yeah. it's quite stagey. And yeah. and um, I don't think it's particularly effects heavy. There's a lot of horses there. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of suits of armor. And, you know, mm. those things couldn't have been free. But at the same time, you know. Camelot looks a bit cardboard in places. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a big, big cast. So, yeah, I, don't, I don't, honestly don't know. I don't know what the budget was like. I don't know. I mean, I should have done some, a little bit of research, really. Well, it's, it's, it's just when, when you look at John great. Berman's directing career, it's, it's like I'm looking at the list and it's like Deliverance is 72, Zardos, Exorcist 2, and then Excalibur. And it's like by the time he gets to there and was talking Lord of the Rings, like did those films lead to the clout that meant they could throw money at this? Like the round table scene where Percival wanders in as a, as a squire, I guess, and sees the extent of it. And he's like, wow, like that's an impressive scene. Like it, it is, it's yeah. a lovely looking table. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, I don't, I don't feel there was a lot of money there. I feel there was maybe a lot of opportunism, a lot of kind of, you know, I, I would guess he found an armor that probably had mm. some suits of armor. You know, I, I don't feel like maybe they chucked bucket loads of cash at it you know mm. I, I have, have, I have the budget here sorry no, go on. I, have, I had the budget oh, here yeah but Keep... well, we know what it means in relation to the period because yeah exactly in, in, in terms of like what 1981 standards yeah. um it was 11 million what's the budget so I, i'd imagine pretty big but what was the what was the could you can you look up the number one film of the time and how much that budget was? I can do, but uh, I think it, it, the, wasn't it in 1981? 81 like, was Empire Strikes Back that? after Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. So that's a good frame of reference, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Clash of the Titans was 81 as well. Um, was it? Yeah, I think so. Um, budget for I, Empire was 18 million. There you go, and you can see that money on screen. Mm. This Raiders movie. of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Superman was it was, yeah. was was eighty one. That was the highest grossing one. Then Excalibur Superman had a lot to compete with. And then nine to five. Nine to five was number three that year. Uh, there you go. I I don't feel like that it was necessarily competition for it though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, yeah, well, it was a good year for movies. I you know, no, no denying that. That's for sure. Absolutely. I I mean, at that age, I would have desperately wanted to see. Well, Clash of the Titans was the film I was waiting on. And I knew I was waiting on it because there was um, 2008 at the time used to, there were little black and white comic strips of Clash of the Titans on the run up to Clash of the Titans coming out. Cool. And I went to see it in the cinema during the summer holiday. It was an amazing film. So that was, I, I would have loved to have seen Excalibur because I was into the kind of myths and legends stuff, but obviously it wouldn't have, you know, no one's going to let an 11 year old me go and see Excalibur. <laughs> Excalibur was number 12 that year. Yeah, Clash of the Titans was number nineteen, uh-huh. uh, which isn't too bad. But there's another one there I saw that was pretty interesting. American Werewolf in Paris, number fifteen. That's a great movie. It's one of my favorites. Werewolf in London, right? In oh, London. sorry, American Werewolf in London, London. Yeah, sorry. Paris is the terrible sequel. I watched yeah. the sequel over. There's that no was way awful. Paris was like <laughs> no, no. Like, that was night. That was two thousand. That weirdly fluid over COVID. Yeah. That I think I'd forgotten how long ago that was. <laughs> no, sorry, American Werewolf in London, but it's, which is a great movie. That was number. Yes, two. it is. It is. Well, it did pretty well then, you know, to be that movie and Clash of the Titans because Clash of the Titans and 
Merrick Weaver from London are pretty iconic, you know? They are, but I, I, I have a feeling Clash of the Titans was a, maybe not a flop, but maybe didn't do as well as they hoped because the Clash of the Titans feels like there's a lot of money on screen. Yeah, for sure. 18, to be number 18, and I think it, it probably isn't, but I feel like that was kind of Harry Harryhausen's last. It's ever- well, it's definitely Harry, Harry Harryhausen's last hurrah is a horrible sentence. To say. <laughs> <laughs> the last hurrah, Harry Harryhausen. <laughs> what an expression! Oh, but yeah, I mean, it felt because I was a huge Harryhausen fan when mm-hmm. I was a kid, and so this is part of the reason why I was really looking forward to Clash of the Titans. But mm-hmm. after it, it felt like that was you know there was nothing after that from Harryhausen. I don't know, what, you know. Maybe there were some things, but like mm. didn't feel like it. Felt like that was the end of an era. Well, how long would it have taken to do that? Do this of it easily, like four or five years at the time, and then there's a lot of animation in it. A lot yeah, and uh, little uh, thingy stop motion, yeah, stop motion stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Uh, yeah, and then like I, I, I remember watching some sort of documentary a couple of years ago that. talking about like kind of like the introduction of CGI and all that kind of stuff, and yeah. uh, when they were making Jurassic Park, some people were tasked with doing stop motion stuff. Mm. And some people tasked with doing the CGI. And when the stop motion guys saw the CGI stuff, they literally turned to each other. And I think it was Ray Harryhausen, his, at least his studio, you know. Uh, I think it was. But turned around to each other and literally said, like, yeah, we're done. This is it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't compete with that. I mean, I the, the difficulty is that cheap motion, um, stop motion, looks much nicer than cheap CGI. Mm. And yeah. You know, it's always it's it will always look fake. It will always look weird. And it'll never look right. But at least it looks beautiful. Yeah, you know, yeah. That a beauty I to agree. it that, that uh, CGI does. But the thing is, the thing with Excaliburs, there's maybe there's a couple of bits where it looks like green screen effect or or mm-hmm. or back projection, maybe more likely. Yeah. Um, but for but for the most part, and there's a few places where it's like the scene where um, Merlin gets frozen. And, and under ice, there's elements of that that look like, oh, they filmed that on a tiny yeah. stage somewhere and just added some stuff in the back. You know, it feels a bit... Yeah, matte painting stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not even matte, almost like a drop curtain somewhere just, yes. to, yeah. just to make the background look a bit bigger. Um, but it feels like anything you could see on a stage in a very small theatre somewhere. Um, but it is still kind of pretty and still very beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the armor is all great, but the only armor I think that is... Maybe custom made is the one of of uh, uh, what's his name? What's the the bad guy's name? Uh, Mordred. Mord is that Mord? Yeah, he's Mordred, isn't yeah. it? He's Morgana. Yeah. He's Mordred. Yeah, um, yeah. the little shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, horrible from get from beginning, middle to end. Well, it's it's a great kind of though. It's a great villain armor to have because it's so. Mm. Like it's so indulgent to gold and it's yeah. beautiful, like oh. with the kind of like the face and the 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 well, locks and stuff and the figure. Can, yeah, it's know, it's such know, a great suit of armor. I don't know if it's if it's particular to gold or whether it's particular to just the way they've shot that gold, or because it's obviously not real gold. Yeah, but it sort of looks corrupt. It doesn't. Mm. It, you know, the silver has a kind of clean beauty to yeah, it. It's a ha- and yeah, the true. Hundred percent. Has yeah. a sort of kind of corruption to it that is really yeah. sort of interesting. Well, um, it's it's even um, Morgana's idea that he'll be better than his father. So you've got the silver, the gold, the golden child, but there's yeah. just something inherently corrupt about him. That shit eating grin he's got, just yeah, coming out yeah. under the just just that little window into this fucking mauve <laughs> dickheadery. Arthur <laughs> Arthur has the I'm pretty it's either Arthur or his father, but I'm pretty sure Arthur has at least has it as well. The armor with the kind of the dog snout, because mm. that's yeah. a really cool face mask. 
That's really, really nice, you know. I can't, I can't remember his facial. I, I, I guess the shoulders that get me, you know, the big yeah, the, the like, I like that. Like awesome, they do yeah. Look yeah. Awesome. And you know, very... when Lancelot turns up, his armor somehow looks even shinier. I know, yeah, it looks like, white, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's beautiful. And I mean, I kind of love uh, some of the performances are a bit odd. Like mm. my, all of the performances are a bit odd. They're yeah, all be fair. Like, yeah, like yeah. Slightly, like Borman went right. I know how you performed it when we filmed this, but see during the ADR, right? I want you to go a little bit weirder. Smoke some spliff. Let's let's go for this in a strange. Some of the accents are a bit kind of. Can you can you do something like Cornish? Nope. Okay, we'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah, uh, try your best. Because yeah. um, they they. Um, Peregrine, isn't it Peregrine? I don't even know where his accent is. Is it's like I looked the actor up and he's English, and I thought I was convinced he was French or something doing an English accent. Oh, the guy doing Lancelot? No, not Lancelot. No, the, uh, the, later on, the, the, who gets the Grail? Um, Percival. Yeah, Percival. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his accent is kind of weird. It's very, very strange. They're all over the place on the movie. Yeah, all yeah. Over the place, yeah. Um, but it, but it, it all adds to the charm. And there's elements of it, I think, not unlike Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which is stagey and, and you yeah. sort of forgive some of the weird accents because you think, look how beautiful it all looks. Yeah, like. I mean, just it's all, it's all in camera effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even uh, you know the uh, I don't want to talk about another film, but like Dra Dracula, huh? Francis Ford Coppola was Dracula. Wasn't there's a great bit where there's eyes just floating over the the train as it goes past, and a big book, and the big book was all shot in camera. Apparently, the big book is a big book with with train. It's a big book, yeah. All it's an actual train. prop, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's funny because I I or, or, that's funny as well. You mentioned that because. One of the things I said when I put this on was talking to my girlfriend, and I was like, "Oh my god, you can see where Coppola got this armor when when they all show up mm -hmm. in the silver armor in Camelot, and they're sort of having the sort of, I think it might be the the marriage between him and Guinevere." Um, but but I was just like, "This is like this reminds me straight of like Gary Oldman in that red armor in the church, yeah. you know, putting the axe into the altar." Um, yes, yeah. They're I so feeding into each other. Did some uh, he, did, he designed that, that armor? I think yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, McNolan did the comic adaptation, but I think he also contributed to design elements of it. Definitely well. did, yeah. They may well have done um, storyboarding and stuff. I have to look for my iPad's running. It's a ten percent now. Oh, a tar thing for it. Um, oh, no. I don't know how long your podcast normally goes for. No, we're doing all right. I think time was. Okay, okay. I, 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 we're not going to keep you forever. Generally, no, no, we record about two hours, but you tell us when you've had enough of us, you know? No, no, I, I can keep talking for a long time. I do, I do have some questions, though, not relating to Excalibur, more to okay. comic, comic books and stuff. Okay. Uh, you did Soul Plumber. Yes. Uh, you worked with, did you work close with the guys at all on the Lost Podcast? Did you have most interaction with them? What was that like? They, uh, well, well, first of all, I wasn't supposed to be working on Soul Plumber. I, was, I came in because Joel McRae wasn't very well. And uh, oh, okay. John and I know each other really, really well. Like, yeah. we, we go back to when I was about 18. I have his, I've come um, with his books as well, yeah. Yeah, and um, John and I had done some stuff together where I'd kind of come in and done some penciling for him, some loose penciling that he'd inked over it. And it looked really nice. I mean, the, the interesting thing about John Ink and my stuff is that when I when he sends me the ink pages, I look at it, and go, wow, it's like I I don't even know what I did on this. Page. Yeah, yeah. And then when I look at my my pages, like, oh no, I can see. Oh, but no, John, it's like it's it's like an optical illusion. Yes, know? yeah, message your head a bit. Yeah, I'm there. I'm not. I'm there. I'm not. I'm there. I'm not. Because it's hard to see the difference, but there is a difference. There is oh, a difference. Yeah, yeah. You know, look, I I mean immediately. But the it's. Pages, 
The yeah. pages which I have inked compared to the pages John has inked, I can tell immediately. There's no, like, they're so different. It's like they're screaming different names at me. So I can tell immediately. But the pages where I've penciled and John's inked, and I'm looking at them, I can't see me at all. It's like John's yeah, okay. sort of overwritten. I mean, which is great. I mean, it's beautiful and it's what you want. Um, but John wasn't very well. And I kind of came in and, and um, he asked if I could help with pencil and stuff. I went, yeah, okay, I can do that. And so I penciled a couple of pages in the first episode and then did a little bit more. And eventually I was doing all of the uh, layouts for it, all essentially mm. rough pencils. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, well, it wasn't an awful lot of interaction. There's a little cameo of them in it, in it and I mm. kind of went, oh, this would be fun if I put a cameo of you guys in this. And, yeah. You know, that was it. So I Where... kind of added to him. Uh, I mean, generally, this is the thing about working with film guys, is film guys kind of go, oh, let's have a meeting about this. And you're like, mm. well, I don't want to have a meeting. Just send me a <laughs> Yeah, if you send me a that's not how it works. Yeah. I'll draw what's on the script, and you'll get it back, and you'll go, "Oh, this is great." If we have a meeting, we'll have a meeting about it, and then we'll have another meeting and another, and then it'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, I, don't, "I have no interest in drawing this." Man, you um, had to get out of tech altogether, didn't you? I've got, yeah. I, that's the, my day job as well, and I just had I had ten meetings today, and at the end of it, my boss was like, "Are you stressed?" I'm like, "I've done nothing tangible today." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, leave me alone for two hours and you'll get all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah get yeah. me into a meeting and you know, I don't know where it's going to end. Yeah. Um, so so they, they, those guys were great. I mean, I just got scripts. I mean, I think they were doing a tour at the same time. Okay. And the scripts were kind of frequently just dialogue. They were like, there was very minimal kind of description and stuff, which is what I like. Yeah, so fair. Yeah. Because, because of the trust nature. Well, it, because of the nature of the story as well, it was like, oh, does it matter where the placement of this object is in relation to that? And it's like, no, it doesn't. None of that stuff matters. It's just yeah. as long as you can tell these jokes and land these gags, then then you're golden. So um, I didn't have an awful lot of interaction with them, but, uh, you know, I, they liked the work. And mm-hmm. uh, I think they were probably surprised. Like, and, you know, they they wanted John to do this and John just couldn't do it. And um, I think in, uh, I was able to kind of bring it back into deadline you know and yeah. sometimes these things get out of deadline and sometimes they're nobody's fault they get out of deadline sometimes they get well out of deadline uh this was in danger of getting well out of deadline because the combination of john not being well and those guys being on tour so the scripts were alive, arriving quite late mm. i was kind of able to come in and go no here we go wrangle the deadline yeah. back to the form with late yeah. running scripts and stuff and so i mean the only reason that book ran monthly is because i was on it <laughs> well because i was picking up all the slack and going here we go here we go uh and so the editors loved me and they were happy so i you know that, that was great it's, it's, it did me no harm for for my career in terms of working with dc um, yeah. but i mean if i'm honest i would have liked john to have drawn all of it I would have, you know i'm happier with it. the pages i love are the ones where i've penciled and john's done inks because he, he doesn't just do inks he finishes the pages so you know, they they look like John's, and I know I've contributed. That's my favorite. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, well, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. So I will answer all questions if you give me two seconds. I can get a charger. So I hundred percent. Yeah, I watched. Uh, I know, like you know, we're just shooting the breeze. At, but I watched mm-hmm. that uh, uh, Love Life with Andrew Kendricks, Anna Kendricks. What's her name? Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, I like what do you call her? The weasel, the shrew. What do you call her? No, I, I call know. her this adorable lady that I'm quite yeah. a fan of. But you're like, she's a monster. No, I like her. Hello. Okay. Oh, I think she's a good actor. Hey. I've relocated. Back. Oh, very nice. The, the lighting is even more flattering. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Well, yes. Yeah. So yeah, okay. So that's that's cool to hear about soul soul from that kind of like yeah, you were on that book and what you did on it. Yeah, interesting. I really like it. I like the podcast and I think like you know, the the book's great and the artwork is awesome. Thank you. Yeah. The collection's out in October. Yeah, I'll definitely pick it up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, if you haven't, you, uh, yeah. I I um annoyingly I'll be in New York for the New York Comic Con that comes out a week afterwards. Oh no way! So. Well, bring some single issues with you. <laughs> Floppies, yeah. well, no, no. I like to call Floppies them, but Aiden hates no, me for no, that. I'm just heading over there. I have another book out at the time that will be um, The Lion and the Eagle, which I did with Garth Ennis that was coming oh, yeah. out. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was, doing, I was drawing The Lion and the Eagle, and uh, I had drawn, it's a 170 pages, um, war stuff, and around the middle of issue two, John had asked me, could I help him out with Soul Plumber? So I ended up drawing the six issues of Soul Plumber while I was drawing the last two issues of The Lion and the Eagle. So at one point I was drawing like 40 pages a month or something. It was an insane kind of, kind of rate. It was amazing money. Yeah, uh, I have all of it here. It's very, very good. Oh, there you go. Oh, there really, you really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I bought a Soul Plumber and all of this. Very, very good But well, the collection stuff. of that will be at New York Comic Con, so I'll be signing it over there. So uh, Okay, awesome. That, yeah. So, and I was uh, working through string bags on the. Um, on the oh, you guys pad. are on top of it. I... Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've had this stuff already, to be fair. But, uh, but uh, actually, well, let's let's we we try and plug you some more because why not? Uh, but that's it. Uh, Kevin told me a little while ago that he was uh, putting in a pitch for some comic book funding, and the first thing I said is, if you're going to do some comic books, head over to Amazon, and PJ has Kevin, if you want to. Some really awesome, help it, helpful comic book project diary stuff. So wow. stuff you can do your layouts on, and stuff you can do your thumbnails and your dialogue and everything. It's yeah. Really great stuff. Uh, so, I mean, thank you, for, thank you for bringing those up. I yeah. They, there are a couple that I've got them. They're thumbnail books, which essentially are just pre-laid out thumbnails. Yeah, but I that's, thought, that's I actually be interesting. Just, I was gonna say that that is interesting. Exactly, that is interesting. That is something kind of fun that someone like I I dabble. I like to do a little bit of it, and it's just like that is actually just like a fun kind of pre-made structure, not sloppy. You can just dot into it, and it's nice. You know, the, the other thing is what well, there are books like that, not unlike that, but they're full of bam, whiff, pop. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like oh, comics, yeah, woo, yeah. Woo, get your kids. And it's like no, I I want mine to look like journals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, adult journals. Thank you. Very yeah, much. yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah, other, yeah. the other really thing nice. there is, there's um, a, a kind of comics diary for creating comics, which is a kind of it's my system, which mm. essentially is is how I how I keep track of work I'm doing and how I kind of get work done. So I will. There's a section in it for writing down different projects and how many pages there are. So the way I normally do it is. Um, I will essentially draw a little tick box for every page. So I'll do page one, two, whatever, and I'll number each page. And the tick box will have, it'll be an X box, uh, not an Xbox video game console, but an X, a box with an X in it. But it'll have a slash for one direction, meaning I've penciled it, and a slash for the other direction, meaning I've inked it. And that way I know if I've penciled, you know, 12 pages and I have to ink three more. So the little diary I've got is kind of a, an accumulation of how I've worked over the past several years. And it allows me to kind of keep a track of as I get a new project, I'll add it to that list of things I've got to do. And then as I go through the month, I'll kind of look at I, it has a calendar in it, but it's an unusual calendar in that it's got 
boxes numbered one to 25, which represents about 25 pages. So I'm not counting calendars from days, how many pages I can do in a month. And I'm kind of looking at it going, well, I've got been given a project that's 12 pages and I've got 15 to do in January and then February, that leaves me another. So I've got a gap there. I can do it. And that allows me to kind of schedule things out mm. and figure mm. out where I am. Because there isn't, I don't think there's anything like that. I mean, there's lots of how to get things done. Here's your to-do list mm. and here's your, but to, like comics is a weird sort of, like my my to-do list is essentially draw a comic page, but it's what page number it is and what project mm. it is. So that allows me to kind of keep a track of all those things and then i, I use um i i'm sure you've seen me talk about it a lot the pomodoro system which is that was um, going to be my next question was yeah, could you talk a little bit like, about that because I, I love a good cult um it's it's super simple pomodoro is the italian word for tomato uh a pomodoro timer is a little t- a 25 minute timer um so some guy came up with this system essentially where you do one task for 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break and that's it. Like you say, you pick your thing you're going to do and you just do that for 25 minutes. And it, it, it can be as simple or complicated as you like, as it happens, that works very well for comics. 25 minutes for me is enough to get a good chunk of a page done. Um, if that's the only thing I'm doing. And my biggest problem, and I think it's a lot of people's problems is that, uh, you think, your perception of time changes depending on, on your mood and temperament. I don't know, humidity in the air. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But like I will be drawing a page and I will draw a bit of it and it'll be like, oh, this is taking forever. Oh, I need a break. I'll take a break. I'll come back. And it's like, oh, this is still taking forever. Uh, and by the time I've done that, you know, I've drawn half a page. A day has passed and it's like, oh, I, I was drawn for a really long time there. And I've got next to nothing done. Because what's happened is my perception of time is completely screwy. It's like not so. Now, using the Pomodoro timer, this is a, really sounds like an infomercial. Uh, using, <laughs> using the I'm Pomodoro so happy. timer. If you, <laughs> if you want to subscribe to my Pomodoro timer, <laughs> send money. No, if you use the Pomodoro, what happens is I, so I have a little app on my phone. The, the app's called Focus Keeper. Focus Keeper is basically a Pomodoro timer for the for the phone. So I have this little app and it will run. Um, so the way you're supposed to do Pomodoros is you do uh, little 25 minutes, then a five minute, then 25, then five, then 25, and then a 25 minute gap. So you're doing chunks of four. So in each 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 uh, Pomodoro is 25 minutes. So they add up to uh, essentially two hours, you know, two hours worth of work. Um, but I have a little Focus Keeper app that t- counts down. So I press the start button and I see my timer count down from 25 to zero. And then when it hits zero, it dings and it says you can take a five minute break. And what I've noticed is those days when I think I'm working really hard, but nothing seems to be getting done is I will sit drawn and I'll go, oh, I've done a load there. I think I'll go on Twitter for five minutes. I'll just check this timer and I'll look at the Pomodoro timer, expecting it to say, you know, 30 seconds, the end of time and it go, you know, you've, you've done like two minutes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you've done nothing. And you're like, going, what? The? Nah, I can't be right. I was like, no, I'll keep, I'll keep working. So you work away and you look at your glance up at it going, well, I must have, that's easily 25 minutes now. You look up and go, no, you've done three minutes now. That's, you know, <laughs> you have not in any way, shape or form hit anything like 25 minutes. And it resets your notion of what time is. It resets your internal clock. So that by the time, I mean, for me, and again, um, I mean, I can only speak for me anyway, but I find it really helpful for me to reset how I view my perception of time versus what it's really like when you're working. Because after maybe two or three of those, 
I'm back in sync with real time. Like I, my perception of, in fact, if anything, it flips because what happens is I'll start drawing and I'll be drawn away and I'll get a load done. I'll be thinking, well, I get my load done here. And then the timer will ding up for 25 minutes and I'll go, oh, oh. I'll keep going and I'll keep going for a minute or two and I'll have a break and then I'll kind of, I'll, and the break then, and then the break seems to take forever because you sort of mm. want to get back to it. So I find that it, it's a really helpful way to reset myself mm. in terms of, um, because the biggest problem, like the, the, essentially the biggest problem with drawing is um, you need your backside on a chair and you need to be drawn. That's it. That's, that's the job. Your backside on chair, drawn, that's it. But when your backside's on a chair, your phone's there and the internet's here and this is there and that's there. It's just so easy not to do that, you know. Mm. I mean, and I started like I often forget. I forget, completely forget this about myself. I forget uh, that, uh, like I've discovered the perfect way for working. I I know if I use a Pomodoro, it, it suits me brilliantly. I can do like in the time in a day, I can do. The other day, I did like three pages of inks or something, which is a fair amount of work. Um, through just sitting with the Pomodoro, and and you feel like, and not only three pages of work. But it's like 10 o'clock and I can, you know, I don't, I'm finished for the day. It's not one o'clock in the morning. What mm. I, what I used to do is I would be drawing stuff and it would be like, oh, I need to do a page. And I would draw a page and it would be one o'clock in the morning. I think, oh, it's one o'clock and I stop now. Um, and then I went, I'll do two pages and I draw two pages. It'd be like, I'll look up and go, oh, it's one o'clock in the morning. I finished. How'd that happen? I always seem to finish at one o'clock in the morning. And it was because I think I was speeding up or slowing down without realizing it. To, mm. to meet one o'clock it wasn't like that's how fast i was it was like mm. i will go a bit faster because it's getting closer it's one o'clock i'm bad you know mm. whereas now it's like you know the the amount of work i'm doing is correct in terms of i'm actually if i say i'm going to work for 25 minutes i work for 25 minutes whereas without the timer there's a tendency to go i'm going to do 25 minutes worth of work and you do maybe 25 minutes over two hours, you know, because you're mm. you're doing other things and you're faffing around. And that time that you're on Twitter and making funny eggs is is much longer than you think it is because your brain's going, this is good fun. Keep the happy endorphins going. Let's go. Mm. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, and so you're sort of on there for ages. So so anyway, back to the diary. The, the diary, I've essentially every day on the diary. So every there's a weekly entry where, where you can enter each week. Um, and at the start, there's a little area for scribble notes, and there's also a kind of uh, four check boxes for essentially four pages. Or if you want to add more, and you can do more, brilliant, you know, go for it. Uh, but also, there's little circles for Pomodoro timers to represent how many timers you've done, so that you can kind of keep a track of how much work you've done based against how much time you've spent on that work. And it's a really nice way to see you're doing stuff because mm -hmm. it, it's it's like. Um, you don't keep track of that stuff at all, you know, and, and, and everyone kind of goes, oh, how many pages can you do? How fast are you? And it's like, oh, I do a page a day. Everyone's a page a day. It's not a human being on there. Brian Bolland thinks he does a page a day. We all think we do a page a day. We don't, you know, we do different amounts per day, depending on the day and the and whatever. Um, but this is a good way of giving you a real solid track of it. And I, I, I know it works for me. And I, it could, you could make the argument and it's been made certainly that I am a fast artist. That's just the nature of me. So I am fast. So I don't mm -hmm. need, you know, like it wouldn't necessarily 
not everyone doing exactly the same as me would get that amount of pages done. That's just and 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 just just on that as well because you do you put up like oh I finished this page or I've inked that number of pages a day and, and it does seem fast. But you look at the artwork like the 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 war stuff you're drawing the the, mm. the scenes you're dealing with the the mechanics the number of characters like you're putting a lot on a page in a day. Yeah, I mean I don't mm. know how to not yeah I don't know how to sit back and go yeah that's enough now. Um, yeah. I, I think like it's I always realize you know the, the thing where you've got to be either good or fast or easy to get on with pick two mm. any two of those i've mm. never been able to control how good i am so i control how fast i am and how easy i am to get on with and as long as i can keep those under control i'm all right oh, but uh, there is definitely there's a, a great uh, it was pascal who said because uh, i like to quote people it was pascal who said you know uh, he wrote a letter to a friend he said please forgive me for how long this letter is i didn't have any time to make it shorter so that's my problem. It's like drawing less lines takes longer. Going toth like takes yeah. longer. It is so much faster to do more that more lines than you should. But also, I'm a, like I'm a demon for kind of figuring out shortcuts. You know, figuring out how to do something fast. And comics is about um, quite a lot of it is repetitive. So like the most obvious, most repetitive element that every comic artist does is draws panel borders. Like, uh, you know, and most of them probably do it without even thinking. They're probably thinking, well, I'll, I'll get this page set up night out. And they don't think how much time that takes. And that might not take much time. But my experience of it was it's taking five, ten minutes every single page. And if you cock it up, if you want to get it exactly right. And I was quite anal about like I wouldn't use a T square. So I would mm -hmm. the only way for me to get a page exactly square was to measure it each side. So if I was drawing um, a panel border, I would be measuring how many millimetres down from the, the top left-hand edge of the page and how many millimetres across. And then I was making pencil lines and then I was getting out uh, uh, a mechanical pen that was 1.4 millimetres thickness and I would shake it, clean it, go and wash it for five minutes, come back, that's grand, ink that and repeat that process every, you know, for every page I'd be drawing panel borders and every mechanical pencil and mechanical pen, I would need to, if you did a batch of pencils, five or 10 pages of pencils, you'd have to rewash your mechanical pen. And that was, that's a long, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like much, but it adds up, you know, it adds mm. up over, over a 20 year career, five yeah. minutes every day adds up to real time. And, mm. and it's not just that, there's a, a book by, I can't remember. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember who wrote it. But he was, I think, the uh, British Olympic cycling team coach. And his theory was that every single millisecond you shave off something adds up. So it wasn't just like it wasn't train your person to be the fastest by making them cycle harder. And that's it. There wasn't one big thing. There wasn't mm. like if you eat all your nutrients, you'll be the best cyclist in the world. It was like. If that helmet is one millimeter thinner, that gives you one gram less weight. That makes you 0 0.001 second faster. Now, if your shoes are 0.4, you know, thinner, then that makes them slightly faster. Now, if you keep your arms down like this instead of up like that, that and all of these things just add up and they just accumulate, mm. accumulate, accumulate. And they accumulated so much. I think he, he was con they were constantly winning. That's that's why English cycling is, is so big, because they were constantly winning for a long time. Um, and it was because of this kind of just constant sort of small little things. Um, and so for me, it's like like all these things. So now, for example, for panel borders, which would have been a five, 10 minute job, 
even though I'm all digital now, mm-hmm. even before I was all digital, what I used to do was I would pencil a page. I'd mark out the, the squares of a page. I wouldn't give a toot about where the panel borders were. I would just sort of roughly draw them. It wouldn't bother me if they were wonky or whatever. I'd just roughly put them in. I'd pencil the figures. Uh, I'd scan that into the computer. I would take that into Clip Studio and Clip Studio has some amazing tools for things like doing panel borders. Doing panel borders in Clip Studio is like press one button to say create a panel border. It does a big panel border and you say, oh, I'm going to put a border there, border there, border there, border there. And it's as fast as that. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's literally like mm. what I've just done there is how fast it takes. And yeah. that as opposed to 10 minutes or, mm. you know, 20 minutes could be because you might have made a mistake or you might have erased something or you might have, you know, squashed a bit of ink across the page while you were rubbing something out. And, you know, you've got to fix that up and stuff. So I was doing that. That's one of the first things I was doing. And that made that process faster. And the other thing I was doing, like if I had a pencil page, I would scan it into the computer. I would print it on the reverse side of that paper in blue and I would ink the blue. And that meant I never had to rub anything out. And that, like, it seems stupid, but every artist that inks their own work is rubbing that work out. And that's 10, 15, 20 minutes of just doing this. Like, no, no mm. skill in that. That is literally mm. just rubbing things out. And I think Jack Kirby famously said, like, every time I rub something out, it costs me money. So it's <laughs> like, it's, it is. I mean, that's why Jack Kirby was so fast. He just, it wasn't so much that he didn't make mistakes. The mistakes didn't matter. It's, you yeah. would just keep going. You know, you make a mistake, you keep going. Uh, I mean, I'm the same now. Like, if again, in, when I was um, traditionally penciling, if I drew a head wrong, in turn, like if it was the wrong scale or wrong size, slightly too big or slightly too small, instead of rubbing that out and redrawing what is otherwise a perfect head, I'd scan it in and shrink it down. You know, if, if, I, if I drew someone in such a way that their head was being cut off by the top of the page, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. I would scan it in and just add the rest of that digitally or I'd move mm. things around. Or if I'd drawn a panel and it's like, oh, that's a really nice panel. It's just not enough room for dialogue. Once I scanned it in, I would literally just squeeze it down a bit so there's more room for dialogue. So it's kind of computerization allowed me to be faster anyway, but also a kind of unrelenting how do I make this a bit quicker? How do I speed up this process? How do I, you know, just take a little two minutes, take this two minute job and turn it into a two second job. Um, and that sort of, all of those things add up. I mean, mm. also I'm brilliant and fast. <laughs> um, no, I, at what I, point in, in the, at what point did you get into Clip Studio or the digital stuff? Like you were, when you were working and drawing initially was traditional? At what point did the, the, the scanning come? Program, the very first bit of software I ever drew digital artwork on, I wrote on the CPC 464 when I was 14 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, now, now I don't want to make myself sound amazingly smart, but it was because uh, I wasn't, I mean, I was typing in a computer program from a magazine, but it, it was three or four different computer programs that I'd merged yeah. together into one big computer because one had a flood fill and another one could draw circles perfectly and another one could draw elasticated lines, which was a big yeah. deal at the time. He used to use XOR. Uh, anyway, the, the so I, I wrote my own software. I mean, software's a big word for what was a computer program. but that, that yeah, When you say that you combined, you're sort of, you had the two parts of computers and art. From the very beginning, you oh, were yeah, like, yeah. I, do, I, I programmed my drawing. Yeah, Amazing. I mean, I, I went to I went to my um, careers advisor when I was fourteen, and I said, he said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I love computers and I love drawing. What can I do that brings? What can I do to do them both together?" And he went, "Oh, you could do um, 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 
technical drawing, mm-hmm. which is drawing camshafts and things, <laughs> like you know, measuring yeah. stuff. I have no idea. But it, yeah, so there was no creative outlets like that. But the very first, um, I think I was doing stuff on Manga Studio version two or three or something. It was like, I, I, having worked in computers, I know there's no version of software worth looking at until it gets to version three. So I just avoided any anything from one to two. Yeah. Straight on to three. Um, you, you seem like a child prodigy in terms of the whole like computer and stuff. Did you know Walter O'Brien? You obviously oh. were. Did, did, you ever, did you ever hear of Walter O'Brien? That name's familiar. The Irish guy who like was a child and hacked NASA and like oh, he's yeah, a complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I, I, I mean, I wasn't. I was only a child prodigy in the sense that in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man was king. That was as far as it went. I mean, no, I Walter, really, I think, might be a con artist, but. Ideas. Yeah, well, I mean, there were definitely, a, I mean, I was not, I mean, as much as I enjoyed uh, the film War Games and, you know, I wanted to be Sneakers. that kind of fucker, uh, guy, I just, well, that wasn't who I was really, but but I did like computers and I did know how to program them, so mm. in that sense, you were like, oh, that's, you know, slightly more godlike than, I mean, even, I mean, when you're younger and you draw stuff, people are still in awe of that drawn, but nobody thinks I'll pay you to do something with that, you know, it's just... Mm. You know, um, but so, but the very first computer drawn, I think, was probably. Oh no, there's no. I I remember doing animation in in Autodesk Animator, and mm. I think probably ninety seven or something. It might have been earlier than that. I was digitally lettering in about ninety six or ninety seven. Um, you couldn't get fonts in those days. There was just no. There was only one decent looking font. I think it was called Whizbang, and I used to. Because computers, I mean, I had access to scanners, but it was very hard to get anything bigger than, you could get very cheaply get uh, four-inch scanners, four-inch wide scanners. Uh, but you, A, A4 scanners were outrageously expensive. They like they were they were the domain of desktop publishing. I, I, you know, that desktop publishing sounds like, oh, everyone can do that. No, I mean, publishers, they were the domain of publishers. Um, but but I did have access to uh, Coral Draw, which was a, oh, yeah. an art program at the time. And I used to, what I would do is I would letter, I'd do my dialogue on the computer and I'd print it out and then cut it out and stick it down on paper. So it was kind of hybrid, hybrid mm. sort of working. Um, but like the very first in anger digital drawing I did was probably um, the, there's some parts of a book I did with Garth called Happy Valley, which was 2009, I think, which which are all di- not all digital but but a digital dr- digital drawing I, I was using digital stuff before that sometimes mm-hmm. to touch things up after they'd been it'd be like let's correct a wee bit of that let's make that a wee bit you know mm-hmm. let's take a bit of white out to that uh, digital white out but that was the first time i remember getting um a friend of mine jim lavery lovely fella um had bought himself this antique 12 inch mm-hmm. and i kind of went can i have a go because i haven't got I want to see what it's like. So um, I had, and they were expensive. They were like a thousand pounds or something for for a six for a twelve inch screen, tiny little screen. And um, I tried it, and I was looking at I was looking at stuff I'd done digitally, and I was looking at stuff I had done traditionally. It was like, can you see the difference? Because there was still at that point there was the the, the debate that computer drawn is going to look like computer drawn. It's always going to look like computer drawn because the only yeah. computer drawn. I think people didn't know 
how to delineate the methods that were being used. It was just everything. It was either computer drawn or not computer drawn. It was either CGI or not. And so, you know, CGI and computer drawn and digital drawn all meant the same thing, even though they weren't yeah. really. So there were some early computer comic computer gen. They were called computer generated comics, but mm. I think they were actually a mixture of. Um, 3D applications and a mixture of hand-drawn. There, there was a machine? digital Batman, and there might have been a, yeah, there might have been a war machine. There was definitely a Batman. Remember, yeah, a, a 3D Spider-Man comic. Sorry, I remember a 3D Spider-Man comic as well. Very 3D. Oh, I don't, I don't remember that. But well, I, the, but the, the war machine thing was like because it was as, oh, because yeah. it was basically posing CG models. It was like we can get these out every week, and it's like, yeah. Nope. You can. No, no. No, <laughs> you no there, there was you I think there was a I think there was a Milo Batman comic that was kind of the big selling point of it was it's all set in the virtual reality. And right. so that so it was actually done in uh, painted in the computer somehow. I don't know if he was using like a very early Photoshop and mm -hmm. using CGI as well. But there was some, if something, it was quite, I wouldn't say ugly, but it was very much like, all oh, right, okay, they're making a feature of what, what they're doing here. Um, no. So I think that's what everyone had in mind. Whereas what I was trying to get to, I think what a lot of people were trying to get to was, can I draw by hand on a computer that it doesn't make it, that you can't tell whether it's by hand or, or well, on computer. Cintiqs were kind of a game changer for that though, right? Yeah. Like, yeah they were, they were, getting they into were, the right? tablets as well. Yeah, they were. Although, I mean, even even though they're still like I've I've done digital stuff now. For the past few years, I've been nothing but digital. But like some of the earlier stuff I've done, you can see sometimes one page and another page, even though they're set in the same place and they're done, you know, both by me. You can tell for I don't know why. Maybe I'd zoomed in too much on it, mm -hmm. and the other one wasn't so zoomed in that you know they don't quite match. And I yeah. think um, like the the benefit of drawing to tra traditionally is that. Uh, you, you you don't realize these are benefits because they're happening in real time but you know you can only see a certain size scale of paper you know you're limited by what your focal length and your glasses are like you know or mm -hmm. if, if like me you have glasses uh, and the tools that you're using can't can only do so much they can't they can't draw down to hair hair length you know hair width lines they can't do that that's not the nature of those tools but they also have a beautiful spontaneity to them mm -hmm. there's accidents will happen but not just accidents as in big ink splatters i'm talking about just a little wobble in a line that maybe you didn't expect or or a straight edge like i you know if you have a dip pen or a brush and a ruler you you trace a line a straight line with it what you get is not a straight line what you get is a line with a little bounce and a little vibrancy because you know every micro vibration of your fingertips is going into that line and into the ruler and and the ruler itself is causing little bumps and micro bumps in the paper you know so so you're getting kind of life life comes from that stuff um whereas on a computer you're kind of like oh i could zoom right into this guy's eye <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could draw the reflection yeah. of this guy's eye, and you can see the reflection on the reflection of that guy's eye as well. That's a, and then you, and then you print it out. It's like, oh no, I can't see any of that. I don't <laughs> it's a mess, I yeah. There, and but also like the tools I try and I and use, um, like if I'm drawing when I'm drawing digitally, I have a pen set to point eight. Right, that's my fixed width. Uh, it, I mean, it'll vary a little bit. I can lean on it, get a little bit of thickness and stuff, but I it's point eight, um, point eight mil, and what that means is that 
like the, everyone knows in Photoshop, you, you increase or decrease the size of your brush. You're constantly increasing and decreasing the size of your brush. The problem with that is that it leads to very fat lines and very thin lines and stuff that looks weird. It doesn't look like it's all together. So the way I would draw, if I need a thicker line, I'll just go over it a couple of times. That's, and if I need a thinner line, I'll try not to lean so heavily on it. And it gives it a consistency that mm. maybe is harder to achieve if you increase and decrease the size of that brush, which is an early, like... I think everyone who, who gets a Cintiq for the first time or a device like a Cintiq will go mad with zooming in and will go mad with changing brush sizes because those are all tools available to you. But you very quickly learn, I think, that um, just because you can, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't, you know, mm. just calm down and just use the tools as, mm. as you know, try and limit those things because they will give you better results, you know. Try, try and allow the tool to work for you and not you to work for the tool, you know. Mm -hmm. I do think I do think one of the problems with computers uh, and I and and um, digital drawing is that it sort of allows an artist to get away with the, the worst aspects of their personality. Like, I'm quite a sloppy artist, so if I'm not careful, my art can be just get mega sloppy. Like, I can, if I want to fill an area, if I kind of get, oh, I've got to do a close-up of this guy's face, I'll just go, I'll just bounce that uh, uh, size way up so I'll get nice giga thick lines and suddenly it's a big sloppy head. I was like, oh, no, that looks terrible. Uh, and I think other artists that, that are prone to sort of anally detail in every line uh, can get super anal about it and and suddenly what life they had is kind of left because they're kind of over overthinking over over uh drawing every single thing yeah a hundred percent like I, I i watched one of your um i think one of your tutorial videos on uh flip studio oh, way back when. Hard when you're doing one of these well things. no i did that i did that again like i said i've been following you for a while and i like oh, okay. like the process stuff and like i got flip studios playing around with it before the kind of pandemic kicked in and, and yeah landed more in procreate than clip studio just based on the way the world procreate went for two years but like i i i mean i was one of the first users of procreate and i wrote articles for an online magazine and stuff for it because it was a great little tool it was mm -hmm. it was brilliant uh, and this is even before the apple pencil was available so yeah or before any kind of apple pencil device and i used to like one of the things i, I would do is i do a sketch and i take a photo of it and then color that in procreate sort of paint over it it's mm -hmm. a really nice way to you get texture from the photograph and mm -hmm. actually a bit of color from the photograph as well. And then you kind of build that up with a bit of painting as well. So, yeah, Procreate's great. But it, it is, I mean, it's a great tool, but it's it's not limited, but it, it feels like I, you're... I see people drawing comics in it and I'm not oh, quite yeah. sure how they're doing it. Because, mm -hmm. like, when I what I liked about, as you say, Clip Studio is, is that stuff where the panel borders, like, I can't draw outside of them. You know, if I fix that um, pen size, as you say, I'm not going to mess up my scale and stuff. And like, mm. I just I run into, you know, layer issues on Procreate all the time. But I, I draw way too big as well. Like I just set the canvas size just like yeah. I might need it to be on the slack back of a bus someday, you know. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, even even in Clip Studio, one of the things I've done on my version of Clip Studio was like I will like I. God, I'm so spoiled with Clip Studio is quite flexible. Like you can change anything on it. And you probably saw the other day, I have a bunch of actions that I've added icons to so I can distinguish each action. So an action is a collection of things that you can program mm -hmm. it to do. So instead of having to do the same repetitive 12 things, you program one little button that does all 12 every time you click it. And it lets you change icons. So sometimes I'll sit and make new icons for things. I've got my own little icons. Um, but like <laughs> my, my Clip Studio is so specifically set up for me yeah. now 
that if somebody goes, how do you do a thing and clips you, you have to st- have to go away oh, and really yeah. think about how yeah. I would do it. Like, for example, um, there's um, Clip Studio's fill button by default is the letter G, which is yeah. the gradient button, uh, which flicks between gradient and fill. Uh, in Photoshop, it's gradient. In Clip Studio, it is gradient and fill. You can change the keys. So I changed mine to F for fill, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I did. But I also added a Z key. And the Z key, what that does is it gives me lines that are either perfectly straight up, perfectly vertical, perfectly horizontal, or perfectly 45 degrees. Now, I, I honestly think making that on the Z key was genius <laughs> because that is a straight line with a 45 degree line on it. <laughs> it looks, it's the only key that looks exactly what, like, what you're going to get. But like, it, honestly, it's, it's so weirdly, like I've, I've built this whole library of, yeah. of very specific tool uses and very specific key mm. presses. I have... Um, if you were to try and use the basic version, you'd get a little yeah, lost. Yeah, I don't know what I'd do. Honestly, I don't know what I'd do. But if, like, for example, like the one one of the tools I use a lot now is I have um, when I create a document, I have a button set up that says "Get this ready for uh, comics," uh, which basically does a whole bunch of things. Uh, one of the things it does is it creates a layer called pencils, and that pencils is set up as a draft layer. Clips to you lets you indicate either a layer or a folder is a draft, and that means that. Things like fill will not ignore will ignore it. So if you do a flood fill, it ignores whatever's in the draft layer. It's almost like that's invisible while the flood tool is being used, which is really great if you're inking stuff because it means you don't kind of accidentally fill or don't fill areas that you would normally do. Um, but and and also I've set it so that when you press a button, it goes a light blue. So when you're inking again, if you're inking something, you turn that the pencils layer to light blue. All your pencils become light blue, and you're you know it's easy for inking. But one of the things I find myself doing a lot was turning off and on that layer because I want to hide it to see what the inks look like on their own. Then I want to show it again to see. And that, there's no button to do that. There's no way to do that. You've got to go over and click the thing with the mouse. And then I invented a button to do. That. So I've got a I've got a, an action, and what the action does is, is it looks for the pencils layer, and when it finds the pencils layer, it goes right hide, and then it goes back to the previous layer it was you were working on. So and I've set that up for the letter H, and then the letter S is show. So when you press the letter S, the pencil layer shows, and when I press the letter H, the uh, pencil layer hides, and that means <laughs> I can very quickly see what my pencils and inks look like without having to go, and like you can't even do. I mean. Procreate is amazing and it's a brilliant paint tool. Again, how you would do comics in it. I mean, I know how you do comics in it because I've drawn comics on paper yeah. and it's still more powerful than paper. You do it carefully. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how do you do your panel borders? So, like, and again, yeah. this is an, mm. a, this is sort of indication of how anal I am. When I was a kid, well, not a kid, but when I wanted to break into 2080, there's a 2080 10 commandments which is essentially, here's 10 things we recommend you do if you want to be an artist for 2000 AD. And one of those commandments, I can't remember which it is, number four or something, says, make the gutter, which is the gap between the panels, exactly five millimetres. Mm. <laughs> Just pick a weird arbitrary number from the sky, exactly five millimetres. But I've kept that for, like, for the past 20 years. My my gap between gutters is five millimetres, exactly mm. five millimetres. Um, and now I'll change it and I'll make it bigger and smaller and sometimes depending on what I'm trying to do. But my gap is exactly five mil. I don't even know how I would do that and procreate. Like, I don't think there's yeah, a way to do that. You'd have I to. I have measurements. There's, there's not. I've done 
I done like recently like five pages in Procreate, and one of the hardest parts was literally just eyeing that stuff and making it precise. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, the other thing, like in, in Clips to You, I've set zoom steps so I can zoom in at certain levels. I can't zoom in any more than I think 150%, but I tend to zoom in to print size, which is a one to one relationship between the size I'm drawn and the size it would be printed at. So it's exactly one to one, which is still like if you're depending on the screen resolution, you definitely need to zoom in a wee bit more than that. But mm-hmm. my next size down zooms in a wee bit more and that's enough. I don't need to go any further. If you mm-hmm. get start zooming in any more than that, you get into real trouble because you're inking things that no one's going to see or mm-hmm. they won't even print. So you can lock off in Clip Studio. You can say, that's it. That's the These are the zooms. I'm not zooming any more than this. Whereas Procreate is just like, oh, it's a uh, Procreate's like a, you know, it's like you're drunk at a party somewhere. It's yeah. like, woo, whatever you want, whoa. You know, it's like it's had too many drinks and it's happy to zoom in for you 10,000%. Whatever you want to do, it's like, it's up to you, boyo, it's whatever you want. And I like, it's like even finding where the one to one relationship is is quite hard in, in, in Procreate. So it's, it's, I don't know if I'm drawing the things at the right size, you know, yeah. it's like really annoying. So, yeah, I mean, I use it. I, I've done it for painting covers. Mm. Um, I've even, I think I've drawn a couple of covers, maybe I've drawn a couple of things in it that have turned into covers um, where I've kind of imported a template and then sort of used that to gauge the size of it because I know where the logo is. But, like, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I would. I could do comics in it. You know, it's just a little too, little too hard. I have, Fair I mean, enough. like, lately I, I went back and I, I was on holiday and I did some little comics on paper just for the sake of doing them on paper yeah. kind of surprised to find a how fast it is and b that no matter how badly drawn they are you can they can still work it's like mm. you, you kind of think to yourself i must need a certain level of quality before yeah. i can allow people to read this work and then you do a couple of silly co- uh, comic strips that have got a couple of daft jokes in them and you go oh no i actually would read this so even at this you're like this there's nothing wrong with this it's not yeah. terrible it's not brilliant it's obviously not as highly polished as my other work but at the same time if i spent you know if i did highly polish it you'd think to yourself what a waste of time that was did you publish something online did you or did you release yeah, I did. Online? I took, I, yes I did yeah holiday comics um which were me on holiday going here's some silly ideas hmm. uh, and i took them and i took some other older strips that i have that, that there's a couple of little one page kind of future shock like stories hmm. i've got and a and a seven page silly anecdote about sylvester mccoy meeting sylvester mccoy which is all true um uh, and um the and a, a little three-page personal story about my mum and i okay. kind of bundled them up and put them in a wee comic just to see if i could just yeah. you know because the the, the the story the three-page strip with my mum is really personal and um everyone that's read it has really connected to it which is weird because it's like it's so specific to me mm. Mm. That that you kind of think to yourself, well, can't I mean it's essentially it's me talking to my mum who died, you know, twenty years ago now. Um and just kind of going like you look at all the stuff you've missed and I'm you know, I'm really annoyed with you because you weren't here for this stuff and this stuff was sort of important and you know, it means something and and what I find is that that's almost a universal feeling. Like if you've mm. experienced any kind of loss and years have passed, that feeling of well, they weren't there for the birth of my son, you know, and the, and it's weird as you get older and my, my youngest son, so my mum died, We and my wife and I got married in 2003 and my mum died very shortly afterwards and then my son 
uh, very shortly after that, I said to my wife, I know we were going to wait a year for kids, but fuck it, you know, and, you know, where's the harm? Let's go. You know, my mum's gone, you know, uh, and like within the month, there's a couple of months we, we were pregnant. And so he is, he's exactly, well, not exactly, he's about a year, uh, about a year after my mum died, he was born. And so you kind of, when they're younger, it's like, I wish my mum was here to see this. And then they get older and you start thinking, was my mum alive then? Did my oh, mum, yeah. you know, your brains, your the time starts going a bit woozy in your head, you know, so you start forgetting and, and thinking, oh, it's, it's, uh, do you remember my mum, was my mum there when Nathan did It's like, no, my mum wasn't there. My mum didn't know I had kids, well, yeah. you know, so, so I mean, that's, uh, I, it felt like that needed a home that story needed somewhere to go and i mean it's a weird home for it i mean it's <laughs> it but but at the same time it's like one of the, you kind of think what holds all these things together nothing there's no particular reason any of these stories should be in one book together and then you realize no they're, they're the reason is because that's how people are people are you know they have stupid ideas and they have funny ideas and they have profound thoughts and they have sadness and they, and that's what people are we're a collection of these things and um you know it it's it there's no reason why a story can't encompass all of those things like excalibur <laughs> <laughs> oh well done well done that's beautiful pj um <laughs> I, th I think it's fair that we could, I mean, you've given us so much of your time here, and I think it's it's a fair enough place to start wrapping this up. Um, okay. The the um, the journals are available on Amazon. Yeah. What do we search for them? Uh, oh, just search my name, PJ Holden. You'll so, either get the journals or books that I've gone. Yeah. So, you know, it's all, PJ it's Holden, good. notebooks. Yeah. The, the holiday comics, where can people find the holiday comics? You can find that on uh, Gumroad's... Uh, if you just search for PJ Holden again, but uh, I mean, I my Twitter, you'll see everything on my Twitter mm -hmm. anyway, or on my blog, which is www.pauljholden.com. It's all on there. Um, and yeah, and I, yeah, I've got uh, we call it the um, Lion and the Eagle coming out in October, and also um, Soul Plumber also coming out in October, but a bit later. And then awesome. I think there's a Department K coming out from 2000 AD, which is a collection of. Uh, stories by Rory McConville um, and me and uh, uh, some other people, which is a, a thing I did with 2008. It's, it's a, they're a, a Judge Dredd set world where this department kind of deal with interdimensional problems. Okay, awesome. And a funny little thing I co-created with Rory McConville there, uh, drawn by Dan Cornwall as well. So um, and it's coming out October or November or something. I think of something else. Oh, I know what else is coming out. I don't know when it's coming out, though. But I did a thing with DC, which is um, they've done an 80-page giant, which is tied into the Harley Quinn TV show. Uh, okay. It's a kind of villains. All the villains get a little spin. All the different mm -hmm. uh, bad guys get a little short. Uh, so I did a 12-page strip with the Joker and oh, King wow. Shark, okay. um, oh, epic. and uh, Dr. Psycho, who's also in the TV show. Not a hmm. character I'm really familiar with. I got you. <laughs> uh, but Amazing. it was fun to do. It was, it was good fun to do. So um, I'm not sure when that's out, but I, I, it's, a, it's a DC thing. I think it'll probably be out in October and November as well. I mean, this is the curse of my career is that every time I do work, if I've got uh, like three or four different projects, they'll all come out in the same week. I don't know mm. why. They just come out the same. I'm like, in, in the start of this year, Atlanta and the Eagle coming out, 
while Soul Plumber was on the shelves as well on the same week. Yeah. Like that's 60 pages of work. And it's like part of me kind of thinks just let this stuff draw itself out over a year and then people will have a chance. I mean, nobody's going into the shop going, the same artist has drawn both those books. I'll buy both of them. Nobody does that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also did Time Before Time, which was out in February or something, uh, one, one issue with. Um, it's a great book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, with uh, Declan and Rory again. Mm. So, um, yeah, loads of stuff coming out. And I'm, what am I drawing right now? I'm drawing. I, I'm doing a thing. I can't tell you anything about, but I I think everyone will like it. Um, Is it for what are the big two? Is it more indie? You even say. I, I I can't tell you anything about it. You yeah. can't say anything. You can't even you can't even say if it's for one of the big two. No, I'd no. say big three nowadays. Which is big. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's. Say nothing. You're fine. Say nothing. I won't. I won't do anything. I, mean, just, I, I, I won't. I won't I'm, enjoy, you. I'm enjoying it. It's not a thing I've done before uh, for a publisher that has not uh, done comics before. But but it is. It is. You know, it's it will be a graphic novel, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing it come out. And I'm doing uh, Chimsky. I don't know if you're familiar with the character Noam Chimsky for 2000 AD. He's a super intelligent ape who. Um, is one of the few characters in in Mega City One that always seems to get the better of the judges, but is equally a good guy, a decent guy. Not he's not a villain. Um, he's essentially always trying to help other people. So I, I'm doing a, a, a Noam Chimsky strip uh, with Kenneth Diamond. Epic. That's Amazing. great. And yeah, I've seen some of the images going up as well, just up on Twitter. Yeah, I post. Chimsky. I mean, I post more than I should. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know me. I will tell. I'll happily tell the world everything. Yeah. I don't care. Um, and I'll, I'll happily tell everybody listening this to go and give uh, PJ Holden a follow on Twitter for. Oh yeah, look, I am yes, good yeah. value on Twitter. Art and I, comedy. I, I yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say. Uh, I did see, we, we wrap it up, but I did see a lie tweeting about watching the Iger sanction. And uh, oh. we've, we've talked about this in the podcast. And Brian was, the, and like, I was talking about it. And then Brian goes like, Kev, I'm not sure if you remember that movie correctly or whatever. It's pretty fucking wild. And then we end up oh. talking about it and looking at it. But yeah, it's crazy. Oh, it's not a good film. No, <laughs> shocking, shocking. Film. It flips. It's a fool. I mean, a lot of people kind of went, oh, you should see the climbing scenes. I'm going, well, do you know what? If I'm honest, I'm not getting over the very rapey early scene. with The, the, the kind of Indiana Jones-esque, but like more rapey, uh, you know, where he's, where he's, he's kind of like 60-year-old Clint Eastwood's in front yeah. of a bunch of 18-year-old girls. And they're going, woohoo. And instead of blinking, I love you, and the, which is still a bit creepy. I mean, I'm being yeah. She's doing a Sharon Stone crossing her legs thing and then kind of coming in afterwards and going away. And he's and he slaps her arse as she leaves. It's like, oh no, this is that's unpleasant. And then yeah, later, later on, the flight attendant kind of comes up to him and and you know the kind of um, the black flight attendant comes up to him and starts flirting with him in a weird way. And then he goes, "What's your name?" And she goes, "Jemima." And he goes, "Oh, if you're if you're Jemima, I'm Uncle Ben." And you're like, "Oh, oh my oh. God, Jesus Christ, this is." Oh, yes, yeah, it's, r- it's rogue. It's rogue. And it was worse. I was watching it on subtitles for a bit because I thought some of the dialogue was at least funny. I thought some of this dialogue's quite funny. Uh, and, and they made a big play about the Albino Spymaster. It was like, this feels very not nice. Uh, and there's a bit where Clint dons a delivery cap to go and deliver some dental floss. He's in dis- his disguise is a dental cap that doesn't quite fit, a delivery cap that doesn't quite fit. And he goes to the door, he says, hello, is Mr. Thingy there? And it's a genuine, I swear to God, the subtitle says, camp voice, 
and then his dialogue. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw I you mean, post that Twitter. I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was. Oh. It, and I, at this point, I was like, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not connecting to this film at all. This is oh. terrible." I mean, is it me? I mean, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just being overly sensitive. Maybe I'm too much new agey. Maybe I'm too wokey. I don't know. But this feels not right. And I then, feel like that was problematic then. Never mind now. You know? Oh, look, I am sure. And then later on, he uh, he gets the girl back to his house. And she goes, oh, you know, what, what sorts of things do you do? And he goes, oh, you know, I've given up all sorts of things. But there is one thing I'm thinking of not giving up. And I, I, I apologize for what's going, what I'm going to say next. But this is genuinely a line of dialogue. And, uh, I, and I actually don't think I should even say it, though, if I'm honest. Maybe, maybe not. Hold, hold off. Yeah. I, I, I think we mentioned it before, actually. It is um, deeply unpleasant. It's, we mentioned it before because th there's a clip on YouTube and it's just called Iger Sanction Insanity. And we've definitely mentioned it before and it like we, we even I, I i think aiden hadn't seen it and we said look take two minutes we'll pause this take two minutes come back and aiden came back and was shocked like it's a shocking line it's yeah it's unbelievable. yeah and I, I mean it's not it's the line is terrible right the line is awful it's yep. incredibly offensive but you know it's it's making a joke of rape and, and it's awfully offensive and and but then what the director and the writer have chosen to do is have the girl laugh and go, oh, you're so funny, and then kisses him. And it's like, oh, that is that is just wildly un horrible. And uh, that's when I switched it off. I just went, this was ten. I don't know, it was ten or fifteen minutes into it. Nope, 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 not yeah. doing it. And I wow. thought maybe this is just the age of that film, but I I love the the, the um what's it called the the um Ipcris Files, which is from yes. 1952, and it's got nothing like that. You see, I've got a bit of you know. I confused those ones when I was talking to the lads because I knew there was one I liked when I was younger, and it kind of had, yeah. you know, Iger sanction if it's yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. someone who's like oblivious to it all. It sounds all espionage to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like it's so, not the yeah. same at all. Anyway, like, I apologize for that for derailing the end of the show window. <laughs> no, I, that was my fault. No, nope, nope, that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, just a quick question directed specifically at Brian. Brian, did you watch this week's episode of She Hulk? I, I did. I haven't seen it. <laughs> what did you think? Um, you know what? I, I like it more when I just kind of watch it. it. It's kind of reminds me of Iron Man 3 in that I don't like it. I don't like it as being connected to the, the other stories, but it works really well as its own kind of standalone comedy. And I think this is kind of the same. I laughed at, you know, despite my exhaustion with all this TV stuff week to week, I did find myself, you know, chuckling at a line here and there. So... I threw that question in at the end because I honestly expected you to go as you have previously. Meh. <laughs> I like you wanted me to end there. Too short. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we, we can call it a night there. Um, at the end of the edit, we generally find a, like, I don't know, a mic drop kind of moment and the theme music comes on and I was kind of expecting him to just go meh and I'd just <laughs> drop it in there. I was trying to force an edit. I haven't seen this week's episode. I'm kind of enjoying it. The problem with a lot of the Marvel stuff, I mean, the problem with a lot of the superhero stuff is there is so much of it and I don't feel the need to rewatch any of it. It is like I, it is like eating chocolate. It's like, mm, yeah. nice. mm, uh, that's enough. I'll have some more. Oh, yeah, but I, I never was... go back. I will say I did go back and I because uh, my girlfriend hadn't seen any of them. So during COVID, we would if we were kind of lost, we'd watch one of them, you know. And surprisingly, because say like I would have seen Tor 3 once in a cinema or say Tor 2 once in a cinema. Surprisingly, going back and rewatch them. I enjoyed them. Yeah. Good. I, good I mean, movies, you know. 
I'm convinced I'd, I'd enjoy all of them if I rewatched them all. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have the novelty of going, oh my God, I can't believe they put Ant-Man on a film. I'd not yeah, have I know. novelty ever again. But at yeah, the same time, true. I think they're all probably very good, serviceable movies. But the only, the only comic thing that I've watched where I've kind of thought, I think I would like to watch that again immediately was Sandman. Yeah. I watched where I've kind of gone, this is so good, I think I could watch this again and mm-hmm. maybe again. But, but it, it crossed into a weird... Uh, thing where the recent Sandman episode which is the one about the um, Dream of Thousand Cats mm-hmm. uh, where I watched it and I thought to myself I, I really I enjoyed that so much I would like to I'd like to I'd like I can't, you can't do it with a t- with a film and TV thing it's, it's when I realized what one of the big differences I mean I know I always knew the big difference because I've told people about this but it's in the comic I can sit over a page I can look at a, one of the page, I could look at one of the pages for an hour. I could look mm-hmm. at one of the pages ten minutes. I could I could reread it, but just skip all the dull stuff and get to the good stuff. Or I could read it backwards. Or you know, whereas mm-hmm. the animation of a Death of a Thousand Cats, I loved it so much, I would watch it again. But I want to linger over it, and I can't. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I want to linger over areas. I mean, there's stuff that the the animation that I thought um, I didn't spot in the comic. And the, the, I, I posted this on Twitter as so I was talking to someone, like, was oddly, I think he's a film critic or something, but I kind of went, oh, the big thing for me was like, when the cats are talking about the dream, the cat is talking about her dream of what being a cat was was like, and we see giant cats walking around and little tiny humans. Mm. That's the first, the, watching that was the first time I realized what we were seeing was saber-toothed tigers and marmosets or things like them, small mm. mam- mammals. We, mm. even, the They're not a fictional walk- world where cats dominated humans. No, no, no. It wasn't, yes. it wasn't even a fictional world. It wasn't even, you know, imagine once upon a mm. time we used to dominate humans. It was once upon a time we were fierce pred- mm. apex mm. predators. And what were humans now were tiny little monkey things that used to eat nits off us and we would toy with and we would kill them. And that's what they... That's what that element is, but that's not that's not how we saw it. You know, we saw was it. was that how it was in the comic? Like, because I I read it about twenty years ago, and in my mind, that's what it was. I like I I remember, and I could be wrong because, like I said, it was about twenty years ago when I read it. I could have sworn it was like saber tooth cats and things, and I was surprised in the episode that it's actually oh. just like big domestic cats. And I was like, have they changed that? Because in my mind, it was yeah, it was saber tooth. Oh, I, do you know what? Yeah. I haven't read the comic in a long time, but now I'm. I I just read it. I read Did it you? before. Um, yeah, I read it before. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure. Oh, it was you the, oh, I forgot it. Oh god. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it was uh, domesticated cats hunting okay. cavemen. Right. Okay. Or maybe even men, people in uh, like modern clothing. But no, I'm pretty sure. I, I, I guess then it's just the same as PJ. I kind of interpreted it then as as you know but they, they were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think when I read the comic, I took it on face value. That this was a dream that the cats yeah. had of, of a past. That the, this is what domestic cats imagined a past would have been like. But it's, in the animation was the first time I kind of realized this is this is a, a kind of myth building that they've done themselves <laughs> of what their mm. past was like. But it's based on the reality. And then, yeah. that's when you connect it with humans and, and how humans have done the same thing. You know, and <laughs> how you know, the myth of Jesus Christ and becomes a, a god and you know all this stuff is kind of interesting but even but even if like there. we think of we think of cavemen we think of the Flintstones we think of ourselves yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in loincloths you know and cats would have domesticated cats would think back in a previous time and they'd see themselves you know yeah. attacking cavemen so yeah it's funny yeah. I've not watched that episode yet I haven't looked forward to it Are you sure? I've read the book I read, well, I, I was just waiting for my missus because she also likes it so 
Anyway, anyway, sorry. Yes. That's another. I, I'm going to hit stop record. Any derails I can get in before. <laughs> <laughs>